Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show veteran firefighter, special operations member, and teacher with the National Rescue Consultants, Rob Ramirez. Now, I've had a host of people on this podcast, many whom have a story career. And when it comes to the world of firefighting, I would argue that Rob's career has hit many of the pinnacle events over the last couple of decades. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the fire service, responding to the special needs community as a first responder, Hurricane Katrina, the Parkland shooting, Hurricane Ian, the Surfside collapse, mental health, firefighter fitness, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for other people to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 guests. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Rob Ramirez. Enjoy. Well, Rob, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. The honor, legit, it's all mine, man. Appreciate the phone call, appreciate the invite, and I'm ecstatic to be here. Well, it's funny. There's a lot of people whose names come up over and over and over again. And with the number of guests that I have, the universe always spits it out when the time is right. And so here we are. Yeah, absolutely. I could. I went through your list of guests and I have no idea what I'm doing here, but I appreciate the uh, the opportunity. It's funny. I just had Steve Gillespie on, who's a retired FDNY firefighter. Amazing, powerful story. He uh, lost a whole bunch of his squad company in 9-11. He was there at the um, the uh, Black Sunday. Yeah, Black Sunday. Yeah, but he actually he hates that name. It's the 178th Street Fire. That Black Sunday was a term that the media had given him. But he, again, story career special operations FDNY and he's like I don't know why I'm here with all the other guests and I'm like all the guests say the same thing that's humility though that's the kind of person that I love coming on the show amen amen I, 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 I totally understand I know you do too so where on planet earth are we finding you today we, we are finding me in uh, Miami Florida actually working out of my mom's house today uh, we have a little issue going on in my house with the baby and uh, some overseas uh, COVID and so it's still a thing apparently and I'm working here today because I did not want to cancel our date. I don't know when our next availability is, so make sure I made it happen. And tell me again, which countries were visited before this horrendous disease? Uh, she was in Scotland and Ireland. Okay, so the Celtic virus is going to be the next uh, the next <laughs> media run. <laughs> all, the next strain. They're going to isolate all gingers. All gingers are going to be, they should do that regardless. <laughs> <laughs> With all due respect to all the gingers listening. And I can say that because I have pod ginger in me. So, you know, no one can be offended by James Gearing saying that, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, I would like to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. 
Very cool. So this is the first time I ever have the opportunity to do this in a podcast. So I'm actually pretty excited about just talking about my family history other than just work. So thank you for that question and this opportunity, James. Uh, my father and mother are both uh, immigrated to the United States from Cuba. So they're both uh, Cuban-born parents. Father came to this country in 1967, shortly after the revolution in a war that he served in in Cuba. And once they lost that, he had to, uh, it's a classic Cuban story. Uh, he had to, it's like a movie almost, believe it or not. And uh, he went through all the trials and tribulations of being on the losing side of the military coup, per se. And when the communist regime took over Cuba, he was uh, hiding out, basically, for lack of better terms, in people's basements and homes. His brothers were assassinated for serving as well in my grandmother's rest in peace home. They were looking for him all over. He was able to find a way out to Mexico from Cuba and uh, eventually made it out of the island country and into the United States and ended up in Florida in 1967. But he was running from uh, the whole military assassination attempt from like 62 to 65. And then my mother ended up coming over here in 1970. So about three years after that, and they actually met in the United States and got married in the U.S. and had my sister and I. I'm the oldest of two. I have a younger sister who's way smarter than me. She's a, she has a doctorate in speech pathology, and she is the pride and joy of our family. I went and became a firefighter <laughs> and a paramedic. And uh, we've both done well. We've both done well. I have, I have two boys. Uh, one is uh, Gavin. Gavin is 15 years old from my first marriage, and Gavin is uh, special needs, which has taught me a ton about myself, a far humility challenge, being a caretaker and a father, uh, relating the job stress to home stress, and, and understanding when I go on these calls uh, throughout my career how it feels for the receiving end parent to uh, need help with their child because they're chronically ill. Gavin doesn't walk or talk or feed himself or take care of himself uh, as a 15-year-old. So that's... Uh, He's my pride and joy. Now I have, believe it or not, I have a 10-month-old who turned 10 months old yesterday for my new relationship. And um, he's a bundle of joy and he's great. His name is Nash, N-A-S-H. Um, and he is a home run by all sense of the word. But I am in a perpetual state of uh, fatigue and tired between work, baby, Gavin, work, baby, Gavin. And uh, doing this kind of stuff on the side keeps me really, really busy. But I wouldn't change it for the world, James. It's my story, and I'm proud of it. Beautiful. It's a hell of a story. I want to go back to your dad for a second. What okay. did he talk about as far as the conditions that were going on in Cuba back then? I mean, he talked about, obviously, the extreme violence that happened after. But, you know, what were the conditions that he was living in and what made him pick up arms and try and fight against that regime? So my father uh, was born in, uh, in a part of Cuba that was very rural, like very country, what we would compare to in, in the States. A very country, very rural area. Uh, parents lived on a farm. He's a one of like six brothers and a sister. You know, back then everybody had a bunch of kids, and uh, he uh, actually enlisted before records were kept as a 16-year-old in the military, and he faked his age to be of age, which is 18. His older brother, my uncle, rest in peace, he was already enlisted in the military at the time, and uh, the 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 dictator or president during my father's childhood was uh, 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 Batista, it was his last name, and he was a part of that military. Uh, when Castro and his cronies started the revolutionary process and, and 
attacks on Cuba and, and getting starting to take over the military and, and doing what they were doing uh, with the guerrilla warfare, uh, for what's called guerrilla warfare. Um, they, uh, my father's brother and them went to fight, and my father, being a patriotic 16-year-old Cuban kid from the country, you know, faked his age and jumped aboard, and, and he was part of that war process for the entirety of the revolution. He, he very rarely spoke of it, just like you would think about guys that were served in the military, either where you're from or in the U.S., or these guys that served in Korea or Vietnam, or even the World War II, you know, the greatest generation, those guys, they rarely talk about what they did during that time. But the, the few conversations, my, my dad's been uh, dead now since 2009. He passed away. And uh, but the few conversations that dad and I had, you know, growing up as a child were very, very, very scarce. And uh, he would, like, talk to me about stories about the hardships, but how proud he was of being part of that process, uh, the, the losing, the, how he would do it all over again. Uh, he talked to me about being on the run, hearing that his brothers were killed. Um, his mother forcing him out of the country. She wanted him to leave because she didn't want to lose another son. And she'd rather know that he was gone and not knowing she would never see him again in another country, but that he was alive and able to create a life of his own. Um, the difficulties of those decisions, leaving his family behind. Those stories were always present for me growing up. And I valued what he gave up for me to have the opportunities that I have today. And tremendously, something that I will never be able to do for my child. Thank God, because the world that we live in today and where I was born and raised. But my father had to do so much just to give to my sister and I and our family. You have to understand, my dad also left the island of Cuba and never once went back, ever once. And he died in the U.S. And I never met aunts, uncles, grandparents, anyone on my father's side. So I only knew my father from my father's side and my mother's family that actually migrated over here. Um, so my, all my aunts and uncles and, and cousins and grandparents are only from my mother's side because my father's family was never able to leave the island and they all ended up dying of old age there. And he never went back and visited because he had made a promise that he would never return to Cuba until communism was gone. And unfortunately, he passed away before that happened. So... His story is a story of resilience and a story of, you know, sacrifice for lack of words. And what he gave us is priceless. He gave me an opportunity to grow up in a country where anything is possible and appreciate everything that we do have, whether the politics are on your side or not, or whatever is happening in today's world, whatever media driven agenda we're dealing with. I, I always remain focused and never lose sight of how grateful I am to be a part of this society in this country because man if my father would have not done what he did i wouldn't be here today having this conversation with you that's 100 percent. this is what's so sad you mentioned the world war ii generation especially because we've lost them and you've obviously lost your father now but so many of these warriors whether they fought you know for the uk the us or whether mm -hmm. it was you know overseas the old generation also had that that kind of bury it down mentality because that's what they you know thought was normal back then now we're realizing that that was a seed growing inside them and, and if only they were able to have the conversations that for example we're probably going to have today maybe they would be able to offload some of that trauma because if he held that on and he lost his entire family and his country and mm -hmm. never was able to return i mean that must have been horrendous for him i can't even imagine the burden but i cannot and and to tell you that i saw my father sad one day of his life i'd be lying to you man. 
I never saw that man sad. I never saw that man feel sorry for himself openly. And he never showed any evidence or sign from the day that I met that man and I was born to the day I buried him. Not once did he show any form of for me. That generation did not show that. They just didn't show it. And I know what he had to deal with internally because forget about the generation human. And that's what makes us all the same. His body and mind process, just like yours and mine did. And he must have dealt with it however he dealt with it. And I don't even want to even go down that wormhole because of the trauma and, and pain that I would have to feel for what he felt. But man, to him, for, for me to tell you that he complained once, I'd be lying to you. Not once did I hear that man complain about a damn thing, ever. Amazing. Well, the very first fire department I worked for was Hialeah, which I think was like 98% Cuban. Did, yeah. did, did your family find themselves there at all on their journey? Yeah, yeah. All my family's <laughs> in Hialeah, absolutely. <laughs> 100%. Hialeah is like uh, Havana 2.0. It is. It is. It's the perfect place for a you know English, non-Spanish-speaking firefighter to start his career. Exactly the <laughs> opposite of where you should be. <laughs> it was good. It was nice to feel like a minority, though. That was, that was one thing. <laughs> I, I believe it. I believe it. How old were you when you joined the United States Fire Service after you left Hialeah? How was that? <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was good. I was only, I was a little bit older. I was 27. So, but my right God, on. that department back then, it was 2004 when I joined the actual department and the training was incredible. And we'll get into that. But the bar that hey was guys. set for that particular hiring process was ridiculous. Uh, and to this day, to their credit, and, and, and I, I know I'm going to have Hialeah guys listening, they have a ton of high speed guys. They just have a very, very strong fire department culture, and their training guys are amazing. Uh, actually, you know, just to finish the Hialeah conversation, um, my last driver uh, sh uh, on my truck was Eugene Gonzalez. I'll drop his name on there just so you can give it a listen. You'll get a giggle out of that. And um, he was a retired, already retired once when he joined our fire department, and he retired as the city of Hialeah chief of training and went to work somewhere else because he couldn't get enough of the fire service. And then we hired him and he took a job as a driver engineer. And to have a driver engineer who got retired after 25 plus years with the city of Hialeah, the chief of training, drive me around was amazing. I was a student as a captain and he was still the instructor as my driver. I wonder if I knew a chief, Go I think it was Chief Godfrey was the, the training chief when I was there. But uh, yeah, phenomenal. All right. Well, then going back to your childhood for a second, um, you ended up in a very physical profession. What were you doing as far as athletics and sports during the school age? Oh, very cool. Um, grew up playing baseball and judo and jujitsu before jujitsu was a thing that was cool to do. Right. Back when I had braces and I couldn't wear a mouthpiece because I couldn't breathe when I was getting choked <laughs> out and spit out my mouthpiece and end up with my nips and gums stuck to my braces from a freaking poor chokehold or a headlock. But uh, I grew up playing baseball, the good Cuban kid would. You know, that's a national pastime with Cuba, not only the U.S. And uh, I played baseball from the time I was probably able to walk, three, four years old, up until my freshman year of college. Uh, I played baseball nonstop in high school as well. In high school, I, I actually, uh, just for my own sh you know, shits and giggles, I joined the football team. I was like, I just got to play football too because the crowd is so much bigger. And Deion Sanders is doing it, and Coach Jackson were doing it. So I'm like, I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play baseball and football. And the coaches both frowned upon it, but I did it for one year, and that was a pretty cool high school experience. And I'm talking about you know American football, not uh, what we refer to as football everywhere else in the world, including Cuba. Yeah. Uh, 
So exactly. And, and, and your neck of the woods as well. Right. So um, the martial arts part was great. That was my father's doing. He's like, listen, you got to know how to fight, you know, and, and he took me and put me in martial arts my whole life up until I graduated from high school. And then I just couldn't do it anymore because I started focusing on my fire service career. But uh, definitely being sports oriented, team oriented, locker room oriented. And I know a lot, of, a lot of guys, I hear it all the time. It was a seamless transition for that component of the fire service. I, 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 I yearned for that. I needed it. I needed to be in an environment where we depended on each other and it maintained that I'm part of a team mentality. And, and the fire service, my first exposure to the fire service was like, holy cow, I'm back in the football locker room. I'm back with the baseball team. I'm back at football practice when I'm on the drill ground. It was, it all made sense to me logically. So with an easy transition, it was a very linear process. I didn't have to go left to go right to go straight. So what element did the martial arts play? And the reason I asked that, I played team sports all the way through to college, but then I've been a martial artist most of my life as well. When you're on the mat, even if you're part of a taekwondo team or whatever it is, at that moment, it's on you and you can't blame anyone else. You can't say they didn't pass at you properly or, you know, whatever. You were either trained enough or you haven't. So I, I found that an interesting contrast to the experience of being part of a team of the ownership of an individual sport as well. You know what? I've never even thought about it that way, but you do need for martial arts. Like you said, whatever you didn't prepare for, you're not going to be able to do uh, when the fight starts. And, you're in, and, and, and that combat sport, uh, from my last experience in combat sports is 26, 27 years ago. You know, it was my freshman year, my, my senior year of high school. And so, you know, I just remember when I lost, I felt unprepared. And when I won, I felt completely prepared. And that made transition over to my, at some level in my psyche, the way that I prepare for the fire service when it comes to skills and drills. I also became very comfortable uh, engaging with other human beings that I did not know. I felt very comfortable touching and grabbing other human beings that I did not know. Things that as a kid are not normal. Uh, as part of society, we avoid each other. We, we, we give social space, appropriate social space. You don't touch strangers. You don't talk to strangers. But yet in the world of martial arts, whether within combat or, or in practice, we're constantly training with people that we don't know or we just met. And, you're, and you have to become comfortable with uh, feeling, you know, my force, your force, your strength, my strength, your, your weaknesses, my strengths, my strengths, your weaknesses. And all that gets exposed uh, and exploited immediately in any form of combat sport. So I believe that that has something to do with the level of preparation, the way that I create my mental algorithms for this is the way I'm going to force a door. This is the way I'm going to stretch a line. This is why it's important because when I'm on the Allegan and I'm on the door, it's one-on-one. -on -one. It's me versus the door. The whole team is not holding the Halligan with me, right? But I'm still part of the team because if I suck, then they're not going to be able to do their job. So it all relates. It all comes right back. It's that chain effect. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned the fire service then. When you were in the school age, was that what you were dreaming of becoming or was there something prior? No, like every good kid, I wanted to be a professional athlete. I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't hate school, James, but I wasn't into school. Some guys are like, oh, you know, I hated school. I hated school. I hated school. I never hated school. It just wasn't for me. I, I went there. I passed the test. I did well. I got. I went through the motions. I didn't hate it, but I was whatever about it. If whatever was a feeling, 
But um, as far as what I wanted to do after that, um, you're, I was constantly in, a, in an environment with athletes and the guys were all talking. And, and listen, I was the first adult male in my family to go to high school in the U.S. So that alone, there wasn't a roadmap. I didn't have a, a role model to look at. Like, I couldn't turn to my dad be like, hey, dad, what did you do in high school? He's like, I fought in the war. You know? And <laughs> be that. Exactly. Like, well, yeah, what did you do, dad? I shot rifles at people in the mountains. No, I, exactly. I, I'm here trying to play baseball. And so I tried to play baseball. I tried out for many, many teams in colleges. I walked on to a couple of places. I ended up um, hurting myself twice in the process. And um, a buddy of mine, a, a, to this day, the good friend of mine, he works for the he works for Miami Dade Fire Rescue now. Uh, he and his father, his father was a, a, a firefighter from Miami Dade. He was also a, an explorer or a cadet coordinator advisor his father. So my buddy tells me, Hey man, um, after baseball practice, I'm going to go to the fire station and hang out with my dad. I'm part of this program called the explorers and the cadets. We want to come out. I had no interest in being a firefighter, but I needed a ride home. So I went with him and exactly how it works out James, right? Here we are. So I ended up, this is my soft, this is my junior year of high school, 11th grade. I ended up going to this fire station immediately. Um, you know, if you believe in divine intervention, I ended up at the right fire station with the right crew, with the right guys to talk to an 11th grade kid from the street that has no interest in the fire service. They did everything right. The way they talked to me, every single person in the firehouse, the way they engaged me, how they welcomed me, and the way they interacted with each other in my presence. And I left there thinking, if this baseball team doesn't work out, I don't know what these guys do, but this is the cool job. And one of the guys told me, listen, you got to go to college for this. you got to go take classes. This is what I did. And I'm like, even better, even better, because I know one of my family ever been to college. I'm the first one in high school, you know. So we ended up uh, using that to go right into the Explorer program, 11th grade. And my mom found out about it. She's like, listen, this is perfect. When you're not playing baseball, outside of baseball season, you're going to be at the fire station riding on those ambulances. And uh, she would drop me off at these meetings on Tuesdays and Fridays, I believe. And then I had to do like, one weekend a month like the reserves and I'll go ride at different firehouses and be there for 12 hours. And then that turned into me creating relationships with the guys falling in love with the job and ended up actually paying for my minimum standards. Um, they got together, provided me uniforms, SCBAs, everything I needed. And the Explorer program for Miami Dade paid for five of us full scholarship to go to fire school right after graduation. So I graduated high school in June and in September just a couple of months later, uh, was day one for Fire Academy for me. All expenses paid. So I know when you wear your uniform, it doesn't say Miami Dade on the shoulder. So walk me through a Miami Dade um, sponsored Fire Academy and how that took you to your department. So uh, when we uh, when the Miami Dade sponsored Fire Academy happened, this is in the nineties, in the mid mid nineties, ninety six, ninety six this was, and in ninety six. The fire service market was so, so difficult to get into. The industry down here was just so competitive. And in the late 90s and between 90 and 2000, and I'd say five, six, seven, it was just damn near impossible to get a job down here if you weren't a firefighter paramedic. And um, even then, you go put it in for a job anywhere, even the same like, like in Hialeah, for, for example, and you'd be 500 people deep and they're hiring seven, eight, maybe 10 people, you know? Um, Miami-Dade County was a selection process made by a computerized lottery system. 
during that entire era. So yes, they put me through the fire academy. They couldn't even get me into their own fire academy because Miami Dade did not have a fire academy we didn't attend at that time. It was either go to Broward Fire Academy, which is in the city of Davie and in the Broward County area, or go up to Ocala to the Florida State Fire College, right? Which I had never been to Ocala in my life at that point. You know, 18-year-old kid, parents were from Cuba, had never left Miami and Hialeah. And you're going to going anywhere north of that was just like, whoa, we're just we're going to Orlando. Come on, let's get let's calm down. So you had to pay tolls of quarters back then, and we wouldn't have a lot of quarters laying around the house. So as we're doing this, we're my mom and I are planning where we're going to do my next move. My father's doing his thing. My father ended up moving to the U.S. and becoming a butcher. He was a career butcher. He cut meat for a living. That's all he did. Um, and he was a damn good butcher. And actually, I have a tattoo on my chest that says son of a butcher. Because I'm very proud of being a blue collar son. Uh, and, and, and my father would never, ever think that anybody would be proud. He would tell me, you got to do better than me, son. You got to do better than me. You can't be a butcher. Look at me. I'm a loser. I'm a loser. I, I, I work. I'm a loser. I, I didn't study. I can't write. I can't read. I fought in a war. I have to cut me. You don't ever want to cut me. Go to school. So when he passed, I, I put it on my chest. Because the rest of my life, I will always look in the mirror and know that I'm the son of a butcher. And I, I did, and I'm proud of him, even though he wasn't. And this is something that I'm very, that hold, I hold very, very dear to myself. And um, so back to the story, Miami Dade went ahead and got me into a uh, fire academy with the other five guys in the city of Fort Myers, Florida. So we ended up going to the West Coast, about a two-hour drive from where I live to Fort Myers, across the state, due west. And uh, we ended up in a fire academy in the city of Fort Myers. And I was there for full time, Monday through Friday, for, for three months at the time. And in December of 1996, I graduated from, from Fire Academy, came back to Miami, and started EMT and paramedic school. Finished that in 98. And um, it, it took me from 98 to 2000 to get my first fire department job. In 2000, I ended up getting a job with uh, the city of Hallandale Beach in uh, Broward County. And then the following year, post 9-11, I ended up uh, working with the city that I'm at now, which I'm just going to leave it like that. The city I'm at now, and I've been with them since then. And uh, it's been great. It was, it was been great. I ended this small, so medium-sized fire department started with uh, five firehouses, then six. And uh, they've been going through a lot of changes the last couple of years. And it, it was really, really good when I got on there. I got a, got a lot of, for a small department, I got a lot of good fire experience. Um, we were getting a lot of work in the beginning of my career. Uh, we, we pulled up the numbers, you know, a couple of years ago and my first four or five years, you know, they were averaging over a hundred fires a year, structure fires a year. Um, not big, uh, you know, your, your regular Florida type structure fires, but not even knowing it, I thought that was the norm for everybody else at the time. Without even knowing it, I was, I was building a very solid base and learning what I didn't know and being exposed to things that I would carry with me when the fire would slow down, which they eventually did five, 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 six years into my career after everything, uh, everything slowed down. And, and I now have that base to draw from when I, when I think back at what I, where I am now to where I was when I started, how much I didn't know. But my transition from the, from the Miami-Dade Fire Rescue Explorer in 11th grade at the age of like 16 to the 45-year-old man I am today really put me through a 
through my entire adult maturity process. I always joke about giving the fire department best years of my life and being raised in the fire department, but I'm, I'm not kidding. My father worked as a butcher full time. My mother worked worked as a licensed medical uh, a licensed uh, nurse, and she went to school while I was in school. And she put herself through school and worked nights. And uh, my sister needed most of the attention. She was younger. So I ended up doing a lot of stuff on my own. And then working in the fire service was the first time I met men that were third, fourth, fifth generation firefighters, guys that grew up in the States, guys that, that had all kinds of opportunities and things to teach me and talk to me about them. that I was not getting my family because I just knew the immigrant process. And um, these men uh, put a lot of effort into my development. And anything that I do today always goes back to them because without them and without the entire story, none of the nothing that I'm accomplishing today or, by, or that I've accomplished, you know, the last five, six, seven years of my life um, would have ever happened. And I'm very, very aware of that. I'm very aware, very thankful for those opportunities. And I'm not just saying that because I'm supposed to say it. I genuinely uh, love and respect those men like they were my father figure. They took a 20-year-old kid from Hialeah and turned them into a 45-year-old man with a family. Well, first, it's an amazing journey that you've been through. Hialeah, like I said, was my very first department. And again, I credit those men and women um, for just forging the, the bar, like welding that bar and saying, this is where it's supposed to be your entire career. And it's funny because you very, very seldom do I have Florida firefighters on here, but you talked about what our certification is called, minimum standards. And it's something that I joke about a lot. There's a lot of kind of conversation in our less aggressive firefighters that it was like the glory days so it's your uncle rico moment is your fire academy oh i was in great shape then that they fucking labeled it for us they said you cannot be any more shit than you are right now and hialeah put that you know shit bar super super high we were hired with a non-cert class 50 percent of the class were actually civilians they went through fire and emt the rest of us were already certified so they beat the shit out of us for three months straight Excellent fire training, excellent physical training, excellent paramedic training. They were using um, um, capnography and all kinds of stuff. You know, um, the MAD device way, way back in 0304 when you know, that came into my career in other departments like a decade later. So I credit those incredible people for setting the bar so damn high for us. And then also not allowing it to lower. If we didn't reach that bar, you know, then, then you were gone, which is something I think that we've lost in the fire service a little bit. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Hialeah has always had that great reputation. They really have. And I, and, and I wasn't planning on talking about Hialeah today, but man, they have a really good reputation at the fire department. I actually have a cousin that works there. He's, he's a lieutenant with the city and he is. And, and I tell him all the time, it's just a great culture, great department. And, and they've had hardships like everybody else has. It's, it's, a, it's a cycle politically and financially and collective bargaining. But man, when it comes to like providing service and user receiving top quality firemanship and paramedicine, those guys are top of the hill, in my opinion. They've been there for a long time. They were winning ClinCon competitions, those medical competitions in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, they've had fire instructors represented at every fire academy in South Florida for many years. Um, those guys are great. And if you're going to start anywhere, what a great place to start. Good for you. Absolutely. Well, the other thing, just to underline as well, you touched on the political cycle. I mean, they've they've been hammered. They really have. They, they've done really well considering. Like There was one point... A guy, I think he was like a district chief when I was there or a BC. He ended up becoming the, the chief. 
and was basically willing to give up an entire shift. Now, this is a three-shift platoon already. So he was mm-hmm. willing to cut an entire shift for the city rather than actually stand up for the firefighters. So I love that that department. I advocate for them because they should be paid a lot more. They should be given a lot more support. Um, and they have still held the line despite, to be honest, being completely shafted by the department lots of times. And we have a history of that. It has never changed. It never changed. From the 90s to today, every, every, it feels like every three, four, five years, they're in the same process of losing members, fighting the city, the city uh, mass layoffs. And this is the fire department, the people that are listening that, that do get work. These guys have a heavy urban area, uh, heavy fire loads. Uh, if you follow them on social media, the city of Hialeah, they're, they're putting up big fires quite often. And they're running a lot, of, a lot of medical calls every year. These guys are in the thousands of thousands of calls every year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I forget the the population, but they were they were very small square mileage. But the density of that population, I think, so was, dense. Yeah, outside of the high rises, extremely dense. Very dense, brother. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, Great. so you have this, you know, this amazing kind of path that's forged as far as your dad's, you know, amazing, powerful story, the humility that he's got, the the sense of uh, patriotism that's instilled with him. You find yourself now in your current department. Walk me through, from a fire service point of view, what really uh, fueled that fire that was already burning in you, but but really kind of lit it so that you started becoming on the path to be a fire service leader rather than simply a member of a crew. So I always loved uh, the opportunity to teach. I, at an early age, realized that in order for me to get better, I needed to know the information good enough to make someone else better. And I found great uh, satisfaction from helping others develop. It wasn't something that I was aware of, like cognitively, right in the beginning. But, you know, hindsight being 2020, the more I look back at the beginning of my career, I've been asked that before. And I've asked myself, why do I do this? Why do I have this passion that drives me to do these things and talk and teach and and engage and care about people's success and wanted to see people come up to become the best version of themselves possible in the fire service. Because I don't have to do that. You don't have to do that, right? But I cannot do that because then I'll lose a giant part of myself. And I don't know where that came from, James, in the beginning, honestly. I just found great satisfaction in seeing people get better. People around me get better. And passing on what I knew was of the utmost importance to me. And learning new information was important to me. I got put on a shift when I started my current fire department that was freaking lights out, man. These guys were so good at their jobs. They were so ready and so proficient. And I here I am, some freaking kid from Miami, shows up in Broward County where I work now. And I showed up and I walked in the door thinking, listen, I've been doing this since I was in 11th grade. Here we are five years later. I've stretched toes, I've forced doors, I went to fire academy, I did well in paramedic school. Um, I'm not going to have a hard time. There'll be a learning curve. I have to learn your policies and your procedures, but I'm not going to have a hard time. And man, was I wrong. When I showed up there, I had so much to learn. These guys were so much better than me at everything they did. Their efficiency, their understanding, their mental algorithms, the way that they learned, the way that they talked and interacted. The, the way that they ran calls, uh, how they just 
Everyone fell into the place they were supposed to be when they were on a call. I didn't know my position on the team. And I immediately thought to myself, I cannot be the weakest link. I have to learn enough to be a part of this team so where I'm not holding them back. So that drew me to learn. And that drove me to learn as much as I could really, really fast. And back then, it was mostly me learning how to be a good paramedic, right? Because, you know, in South Florida, you get on here, you do time on the freaking truck, and then the rest of the time, you're on the ambulance. And then if the ambulances go to fires, so you do get fires. But the majority of my time when I got on was on the back of that ambulance. And I needed to be good at that job, be the third member on those ambulances. So these guys were hands down some of the best. They were training all the local fire departments and EMS. They were teaching at all the local colleges, the PMT and paramedic programs. We had student writers every day at our firehouses. Um, they were winning competitions all over the state. And I'm thinking to myself, I, I need to fall in. So I dove into that. And like anything else, the stuff I didn't like to learn in school that I felt like did not apply to my life, that mentality carried over to the fire service. And I began my process of becoming a better paramedic and a better firefighter because the stuff I was reading made sense to me. It was relatable and I needed it now. I was compared to kids. You can tell a five-year-old kid all you want. When you grow up, you're going to need to be this way. When you get married one day, you need to find a woman that's like this or like that. Later on in life, you need to make sure you do this. Five-year-old kid's going to hear that because you're telling him, but he doesn't need it right now, so he's not really going to learn it. But if you tell that kid who's trying to learn how to ride a bicycle, this is the way you ride a bicycle today, and this is the way we get these training wheels off today. That five-year-old kid's going to listen to great detail to everything you say and apply it immediately because he needs it now. I compare myself to that five-year-old kid learning to ride a bike. I needed to learn how to ride that bike that year. So I dove into everything I can read, and I fell in love with the subject matter. I fell in love with it to the point where I was offered a job teaching it, and I started teaching EMT school, and that transitioned into teaching paramedic school. In between, I was doing an ACLS class, an advanced cardiac life support class here and there when they would follow my lap. I started uh, associating myself with people at different universities and colleges at University of Miami, that Broward Community College, at Miami Dade Community College. And I started getting involved in all these teaching avenues on the EMS side. And people started telling me, hey, man, you're a good storyteller. Like these, you're doing well. Your students are doing well. Passing the graduation ratio is very high. So I thought to myself, well, maybe I'm onto something here. If the students are learning and, and I'm getting satisfaction out of them being good and I'm getting better myself, maybe this is something that I need to explore. And eventually, fast forward, you know, Jesus, probably 10, 12 years of EMS teaching. I ended up in like 2009 working as a minimum standards fire academy instructor. And it was such an easy transition for me because of my previous teaching experience as an EMS instructor, and then finally understanding the way adults learn and the adult teaching process and the art of adult learning and how adults need to find the subject matter that's relatable and applicable to today's needs. And you have to use their previous life experience in EMT score standards, whatever they did in the street up to that point, or if you, even when you talk to a senior fireman, it's the last five years, 10 years, 15 years of experience, all of those things have to come into consideration when you're teaching them a subject or a new skill. But if they cannot relate to it, they don't need it right away, or they can't, it doesn't apply to their past previous experience in life, they're not going to stop listening and learning. Okay? So that whole process, James, really became one of my life's passions. 
And it carried me through to where we are today. And I don't say that, I want to say like you, your question, you know, what took me from being an everyday city of whatever firefighter to where I'm, what I'm doing today, it wasn't a cognitive decision. It wasn't a, a okay, I'm, this is where I want to be in five years. I wasn't forecasting. I was just very organic and a lot of opportunities fell on my lap. But I will tell you is that I never said no to an opportunity, even when I felt like it was too big for me. And, and sometimes I learned and sometimes it fell on my face, but through struggles, we grow, right? And it was in the process of failing that I learned and in the process of passing that I was like, okay, I belong here. And you do that enough times, and to this day, I'll do it. Like If you call me like, hey, Rob, let's do a podcast. Sure, let's do a podcast. I don't know how it's going to go. I hope it's a home run, you know, but we're going to get together. We're going to figure it out. I'll never say no to an opportunity to share my passion because we're, we're here to scatter more than we can. And I strongly believe that. Absolutely. Well, touching on the EMS side for a second, we joined the fire service where EMS was already very, very entrenched into the fire service. In fact, you have to go to EMT school before you're even allowed to walk through the doors of a fire academy. There's still this kind of, uh, I don't know the word to describe it, but there's this this fallacy that some firefighters, especially some of the younger ones, are like, oh, fuck EMS, I'm here to be a firefighter. When, as you touched on, the number of actual fires that we are able to respond to has diminished year after year after year, certainly in my career. Talk to me about that perspective. For me personally, this if you do a right-hand search in a fire and you find someone, you pull them out and you leave them on the, on the driveway to die, that's called body removal. But if you have the skills as an EMT or a paramedic, now you're actually saving a life. So talk to me about that kind of, um, you know, the the anti-EMS conversation, especially with the younger people, from you who has spent a lot of time in, in special operations, teaches in national fire conferences and academies, yet has a very strong EMS background. So, um, like you said, I'll just echo what you said. In South Florida, for your listeners, South Florida is a very, has a very strong paramedic culture. Um, we were some of the first in the country, if not the first, in South Florida to have paramedics on 911 fire department responses. Uh, so it's part of our culture down here and very, so very few times will you come across a, a South Florida firefighter. And I'm, when I say South Florida, I'm talking about, you know, South of Orlando, Orlando to Miami. Um, I'm talking about a South Florida firefighter that did not start his or her career on an ambulance or what our brothers, you know, affectionately refer to as a bus up North. Um, a lot of guys cut their teeth and sharpen their axes on that ambulance because the ambulance ambulances do make fires the ambulances do make uh, car accidents special operations collapse calls special operations stations have an ambulance assigned to it those firefighters that hold special uh, special operations certifications they're just not senior enough to run on the heavy rescue or on the squads um stations that do hazmat have ambulances attached to them you have a hazmat engine a hazmat specialty truck and a hazmat rescue or ambulance component. Those guys with primary duty is to provide patient care, but they're also at that station because they hold a hazardous materials technician certification. So when they arrive on scene, if there is no patient care to be rendered, they also participate and perform as hazardous materials technicians. Same thing with the structural collapse guys. Once they get there, if there's no immediate need for emergency medicine and or transport, those members are operating as a special operations component, just like the guys that rolled up on the heavy rescue six deep. Now, for the men and women in our part of the world that 
only say that they joined the job for the fire component. In South Florida, I'm being very specific, in South Florida, um, you know, my travels take me to different parts of the country which are more fire-centric and have not married the two yet, right? Um, but in South Florida, the members that say, you know, fuck EMS, quote-unquote, um, they're living in a, in, a, in, a, in a place that really doesn't exist and they're stunting their own growth. It is through exposing yourself to those EMS calls, to those uh, life or death situations. Um, I was promoted as a lieutenant in my fire department, and my first assignment was as a lieutenant line supervisor on an ambulance. So where I learned to make decisions, deal with conflict resolution, deal with complaints, make calls on scenes, on searches, like you said, left hand, right hand, oriented, or making a window, whatever we're doing, whatever assignment I received from the incident commander when I showed up on my ambulance, I learned to do that as a line officer on an ambulance, on a fire scene, on an ambulance, on a serious medical call, on an ambulance dealing with an issue with an employee, developing, growing, being part of their development process. All these things I learned um, on an ambulance. And so the men and women that uh, had that fuck EMS approach, we're negating 80, 90% of what we do. So am I saying that one is more important than the other? Absolutely not. We, um, we get paid, we're paid fire department, right? So we get paid to provide extremely, extremely good fire service and extremely, extremely good medical service. Now, can we control the call types? Absolutely not. But can we control how we respond to these calls and our level of performance? Absolutely, that's within your control. You can't choose what calls you go to, just like you can't choose your experience, but you can control and choose your preparation and your training for those calls. I need a Swiss army knife, for lack of better terms. I need, I need somebody to show up on scene and be able to provide immediate medical care at the highest level and get them to, to, an, op to, get them to an operating room or an emergency room or a cath lab or a wherever we're taking them facility just as much as I need that person to do a throw a 24-foot ladder in the right position at the right height, at the right window, and perform a flawless BES in a room or beyond that door. I need the same members to function at the same level on both calls. Now, is that always a possibility? No. Has it gotten me some trouble in the past? I'm going to be completely honest with you, James. It absolutely has, because what happens in South Florida, as opposed to other parts of the country that do not mix and marry their EMS and fire, is that we've been able to open the floodgates and hire people that get on the job that only want to do EMS. And they just maintain that bare firefighter minimum standard. And then we also have what you mentioned, guys that excel at firefighting, but just do the bare minimum standard at EMS and rely heavily on the rest of the crew to keep up with the latest trends in emergency medicine. So we have a little bit more to worry about than other places but if everyone just did their jobs the way that we're supposed to, to the scale of their job description, I think we'd all be okay. But there is really no room for either side of the house, whether it's the paramedicine side or the firefighter side, to say that one is more important than the other. I get it. Um, we're here for them. If you're going to say that we're here for them, I'm wearing a T-shirt that says, send me. Send me to medical calls. Send me to help the old lady at 3 a.m. get off the toilet. Send me to pull the child out of a fire. Send me. I want to be there. We have to make ourselves available. Okay? When we raise our hand and take an oath that you say, I do solemnly swear to perform my duties, in those duties and in that solemnly, solemnly swear moment, you are 
creating something that you didn't have to create, a promise. If you cannot uphold that promise, go to another job that you don't have to raise a hand and solemnly swear for. There's a lot of those out there, but that's what makes our job different. It's, those are not just words. You're doing yourself and the public a great injustice if you're swearing an oath and then not upholding that oath by being both good at fire and EMS if that is in your job description. I know it's not the same for everybody everywhere, but where I'm from, you have to be good at both. And we have no choice. Well, I'm glad I asked you that question because I agree. I mean, you said you mirrored mine. Well, obviously, you just articulated such in such a great way how I feel as well. There are some departments that obviously are still doing primarily fire, but even London Fire Brigade and some of these other ones, they're leaning into the EMS side more because there is a cross-pollination. And by pigeonholing those two services, you're negating the ability for us to maximize our, you know, our skill set on, on scene. So I actually wrote a book about three years ago, and one of the chapters is basically about a back-to-bed call that, that, you know, that we would run all the time. But the, the incredible impact that simply responding to an elderly couple's house and to say the wife has not only fallen out of bed, but she soiled herself, and the man that could have been a builder or a soldier or a butcher or someone who was able-bodied and, and had a lot of pride and adored you know, the love of his life, now doesn't even have the ability to pick her out of her own shit off the floor. So three men, women, whoever it is, respond, and we pick her up, we take her, you know, clean her off, get her some new clothes, and put her back to bed. To me... That is far more powerful than putting out a mattress fire in a house. So Amen. when we have these conversations, we've got to remember what was the biggest impact we had on a human being. And a lot of times that will be riding a rescue or an ambulance. And sometimes it will be riding a truck or an engine. I refer to this as meeting the needs. Our job is to meet the needs of society and humanity. They dial 911 for everything. You've all heard that. They dial 911 for the UFO that lands in the middle of the intersection. And they dial 911 to get the old lady out, out of her shit and everything in between. Our greatest impact and our ability to improve the human condition is on calls like you just perfectly described. Those calls happen a lot more often and more frequently than any mattress fire, than any high sentinel event fire. It happens so often. I just ran up half a dozen of those two days ago. And I went to the same lady twice. One time to put her from bed to the recliner and eight hours later from the recliner to bed. And in between, she fell by the washing machine trying to get her husband's load of laundry out. And she's 96 years old. And they're both crying. And he tells me with a look in his eye that he's going to have to put her in a nursing home. And she says, don't say that. And they've been married 50 years, James. 50 years. 50 years. And he's contemplating Splitting the marriage because he can't take care of her anymore. Okay. If that does not pull at your heartstrings, then you have no heart. And I show up there with a smile, ready to serve. If I bitch or complain about it because I'm exhausted, it happens on the way there. But the second I shut the door of that truck and we pull that air brake and I walk in that door with a smile and I will do everything for that person like if they were my mother. Because I told you in the beginning, I have a special needs son. My, his mother's called. 911 a dozen times. And there, we've had great crews come out and transport Gavin. We've had horrible crews come out and transport Gavin. We've had empathetic crews with men and women that care about their patients. We've had crews that just want to get them off the stretcher. Okay, they don't know who, that, who I am. That I'm a firefighter. He's a firefighter's son. 
It, it doesn't say that on his shirt. And um, I treat everybody's kids like they were my own because I had that firsthand experience as a father with, who needs the fire service to be performing at their ultimate. We don't have the, the opportunity to pick and choose who deserves our service. Just send me. There's no policy that says uh, this policy covers everything that's not written in this protocol book. Um, but there is. Just meet the needs. Meet the needs of society. Meet the needs of the call. Within that scope of practice, meet the needs of the nature of the call to the best of your ability, and you're improving the human condition. And that's what we're here for. I solemnly believe that we are here to meet the needs of the people and improve the human condition no matter what it is. Does it get abused? Absolutely. Do people call us for the wrong reasons? Absolutely. And are, do we have people that should not be calling? Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. Are we woken up 10 times after midnight for bullshit at times? Absolutely. I'm not sitting here saying that it was all hunky-dory, perfect, wearing, waving my fire rescue service pom-poms. I understand the reality of our job and the difficulties that it creates for a lot of us. Okay? But this is what we signed up for. And if not us, then who? There is no 912. They dialed 911 because they needed us. We're going to meet the needs of the nature of the call to the best of our ability, whether we have a policy for it or not. And then we're going to find something we can do to make it go away, whether it's create social services, contacts, uh, uh, refer them to a human rights, I'm not a human rights, a victim's rights advocate. Uh, we have all types of services that we provide nowadays in the world that we operate in that I can refer these people to that don't need the fire rescue service, but they're using it constantly. So there's solutions to it. You give me a problem, I'll find a solution for you. And if I can't find the solution, we're going to invent one together and make their condition better. But the men and women that sit here and bitch and complain about these calls because it's beneath them, kind of my job description. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sleep last night because we went up to change this old lady's diaper twice. I, I'm a firefighter, paramedic. I'm going to change diapers. Man, you signed up for this, bud. You signed up for this. Nobody went out there and recruited you. You didn't go by a fire rescue service, a recruitment office on your way to your firehouse. You signed up for this. You knew very well what we were doing. This is not a movie. This is an act draft or ladder 69 or 59, whatever it was. <laughs> you, you know, it, we, we're here to do a job, and that's to make these people get better and, and meet them at the best of our ability, James. I strongly believe that. I watched Ladder 69. I don't advise it, just so you know. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's up, up, up there with Human Centipede. <laughs> <laughs> human Centipede? Whoa. That's a good one. That's a Firehouse Classic, James. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, speaking of um, special needs, you know, patients, uh, I had Todd Edwards on here talking about the class that he gives. Obviously, he's got an autistic son as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that is such an undertrained element of, of the first responder profession, even more scarily, I think, on the law enforcement side. Talk to me as a veteran firefighter paramedic now and a father of a special needs child, some of the things that you wish responders would know. Um, I, I'm actually excited. I'm going to meet Todd, uh, I believe, uh, next month uh, at a conference. We're going to be at our, doing our first conference together. We always miss each We're always at different conferences. We're finally going to do one together. And I've been a, a fan of his from afar. And the, obviously, he did a great job. Uh, he, had a, uh, he had a stellar career. And um, he, we run in the same circle. We just had a cross path. And then we, we share that special needs parenting uh, understanding that that's very, very, very unique. Um, man, what do I wish? I wish that there was uh, more exposure to that education. And I got to be honest, 
if I didn't have a special needs son, I probably wouldn't want to take the class. It's just not a sexy topic, right? Um, these calls are, thank God, you know, these calls are so few and far between um, that unless you, you're servicing an area that has a special needs facility that you frequent, but um, these calls are very few and far between because the caretakers or the parents are very comfortable with everything they do with the child daily. So they really do not rely on 911 until they really have to call 911. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to abuse the system because they understand the system is not built for a special needs person. It really is. Uh, uh, hospitals are not built for it. Society is not built for special needs people. If you get around in a wheelchair, um, it's, it's almost impossible to get through New York City. Okay? It's, uh, it's the society is not built around that this culture and these people, and neither is our job. Um, in the perfect world, James, I'd love to see more training for our members. Um, mandatory, mandatory training. I love to see uh, whatever uh, continuing education classes are required for paramedics. For paramedics, it should be a 100% uh, component that covers every spectrum of autism, special needs, and you know even assisted respiratory uh, uh, medical care for kids that have traits and, and our ventilators. These are part of our society. These members are part of our society. These are calls that we respond to that we need to be. Uh, understanding that they have different needs and different approaches to assessing them and talking to them, interacting with them, and even handling them. Uh, and the parents are also part of the equation. Normally, you walk up to a perfect example. At a 41-year-old female with a seizure that I, my, my rescue, my ambulance was out of the firehouse on another medical call, and I ended up becoming a first responder on my ladder truck to the seizure call in my, in my zone, waiting for an out-of-zone uh, ambulance or rescue to come. So I walked in the door and there was a special needs 41 year old female who had just had a seizure and the mothers and the father are with them still at 41 years old. And they, right when I walk in the door, being a parent, a special needs parent, I can tell by her look that she was a special needs uh, patient. And the mother immediately started telling me, I don't want her transported. I don't, she had the history of seizures. She has a fever. I just called you guys because I got worried. And every time you guys come here, you just snatch her and take her to the hospital. And I, and I let her finish. And then I, I, I said, I, ma'am, I'm a special needs father as well. My son also has seizures. I understand what you're saying. Why did you call us and how can we help? And she went on to tell me exactly what she needed. I need her put in the bed. I need her to check her temperature. I already called her neurologist and her specialist. And we went down that conversation. Guess what happened when my ambulance got there? The Try. ambulance pulled up. Go ahead. Try to snatch her up. The second they pulled up, they pulled up. I walked, I actually knew it. I left my members inside with her. I walked outside and stopped them in the front yard. And I said, hey guys, it's a special needs 41-year-old female. She yeah, the seizure? I'm like, yes, the seizure. She wants her checked. She does not want her transported. Oh, she's gonna have to sign a refusal. She can't sign a refusal if she's a special needs. Uh she cannot have thought she has to go to the hospital. Why are we here then? So I had to have that conversation with the lieutenant and the crew outside before they went in. That small five minute, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it this way. And interact with the mother. 41 is violation. That's her chronological age. Okay, that's we're just dealing with chronologically with a 41-year-old female. But we're, the mother's making all the decisions for her. This is normal for them. And we went down that road and I gave them a little five-minute educational spiel that I've learned only because through trials and tribulations and failures as a special needs father and my interaction with the system. But my own guys, my own department, was about to walk in that door if I was off duty that day and do exactly what I would not want them to do for me and my son. 
because the way that we're, we don't have enough training and you just don't know what you don't know. So, you know, your level of exposure is associated to your level of success and they just don't have enough exposure and these types of calls. And I really wish that they would. So it was handled completely well. The parents were, ha- were thankful and she stayed home and everything worked out hunky dory. But I wonder what if I wasn't there, you know, it would have been a co- totally different interaction. Well, you talked about the trakes as well. You just made me flash back to, I think it was Anaheim. I'm sure I'm certain it was. And it came in as an 18 year old male difficulty breathing. And so initially I'd been on long enough to be go, oh my goodness, it's going to be a, you know, high prevent anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, we get there. No, it's a, a cystic fibrosis um, patient, probably close to end of life. The pictures on the, uh, on the walls of this kind of muscular football player. Maybe he was a little bit older. Maybe he's like 20. Um, but anyway, yeah. now he's, got probably 60 pounds he's just skeleton on his bed but he's got a um a trach and i forget there must have been a machine and in Mm -hmm. order for us to transport we had to manually bag him and it scared the shit out of me because even though you know i'd bag people that were in cardiac arrest well that's easy they're (laughs) they're Mm -hmm. dead at the moment you know but now you're you're breathing for this individual and if you screw up if you lose the seal if there's a you know some sort of mucus plug that you didn't realize that you could you could kill that person on the way so that's another area where i felt kind of under trained so i mirror exactly what you said absolutely that's why these critical care transport companies uh nationwide they they keep a respiratory uh, therapist with them so that when they do travel with these patients they take an actually trained respiratory therapist with them uh, and nurses and paramedics for these special care patients we show up with three guys and girls that may be 21 years old fresh out of paramedic school here you go kid this is my son's worst day of his life. Make it better. And they're going to go right off that script on that freaking policy. And if it doesn't meet something on there, they're just going to give him high flow diesel and haul ass to the hospital and probably do the best that they can. But man, we, we are as a fire service on the paramedic side. And I argue with Todd, even on the fire side, you know, when it comes to searching for these kids and what they're most likely going to do if they find themselves in a fire, like there is no way that they're going to self-rescue. You know, that's not an option. And I make a point of talking to my members about that. I operate as a captain in my firehouse, right? And so whenever we run a call, be it a, an alarm or a medical call or any type of scene that has either a bedridden person or a special needs person or an infant, I come to my guys and I remind them, man, listen, a pot on the stove will kill this person. Something that you, you know, a pot on the stove that you guys turn your nose up at. Like, uh, so, so it's a can job, water can cap, come on. A pot on the stove will kill this person or this child because they cannot self-rescue. So do not allow the notes on this call to ever dictate your level of preparation. Okay? You show up ready to go each and every time because just like my son, Gavin, and my new one, Nash, neither one of them can self-rescue, man. Neither one of them can for different reasons. So Palm Beach County, Engine Company 58. Okay? If you're listening, guys, you cannot suck. That's the firehouse that serves my area. There's those guys and those men and those women on that rescue and on that engine and not suck. They can't show up to work and take a day off because if I'm not home and I'm on duty or teaching or doing something, Gavin and Nash cannot self-rescue. And a pot on the stove will kill my kids. So they need to be performing at 110% when they come out of that firehouse. They have no option. And when my members respond from my firehouse, we have a bunch of Gavin and Nash's in our first do as well. And I keep the same mindset. That's part of our agreement with the public, man. That is part of our agreement with society. We are part of the community. We are part of the neighborhood. 
When you get discounts as a firefighter or police officer, when you get discounts as a military member, when people thank you for your service at the grocery store, it doesn't mean you, you, you serve to protect them or you, you ran a call on their family member. That's an understanding that if they need you, you will be there for them. And they're thanking you for your oath, not for what you've done. They're thanking you and front-loading your, your service delivery to them. So if you're not going to provide that service and hold up your end of the deal, don't take the fucking discount. And don't take the gratitude. I strongly believe that. Well, I love that. And also, Ocala Engine 6, that accounts for you as well, because that's my first yeah. <laughs> Ocala's got a lot of good guys too, man. Yeah, they do. They live in a great area. So one more area, just while we're on the, the lesser taught parts of the fire service, I've had a lot of guests on recently that have talked about the human trafficking element. And when I look back now, especially my time in, in Orlando, it was Orange County, um, I worked, you know, a lot of really shitty areas, a lot of really shitty motels. And now, you know, I kind of kick myself. I mean, I, I didn't have the knowledge back then, but I look back at some of the calls and some of the roomfuls of women that I pulled someone over, you know, out that was an overdose and, you know, we saved her life. But now I realized that there was a pimp in there with them. There was three other, you know, prostitutes. They were being trafficked in some way, shape or form. Another area we don't get any training on at all. Talk to me about that through your eyes, if you have any perception. I've luckily never even... Uh, had a human trafficking call in my career. I'm actually wrote it down right now, human trafficking question mark. Um, I have not had that experience at all in my career. I've had prostitution calls, which were probably trafficked, but I never even thought about pro going down that road uh, because it didn't meet the Hollywood script of a, a uh, import container filled with women, you know, and Leslie Nielsen trying to save them with his great accent. But, uh, <laughs> But uh, uh, is it Leslie or Liam? Um, Liam. I'm I was going to say Leslie Nielsen. That would be that's yeah. a comedy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, uh, I haven't had that experience. I've, you know, had several pimp and prostitute calls, uh, but never had any type of exposure to that. And since I haven't, I'm probably going to not do well. And I do find myself in that position. Um, so besides everything else we talked about. In order for me to meet the needs of the community to the highest level possible, I need to also create those exposures and those trainings, um, not only in advanced airway control of special needs patients, interacting with special needs people on fire scenes and medical calls, but also human trafficking awareness, for lack of better terms. These are things that the fire service is missing the boat on, 100%. Yeah. Well, there's a... Uh a um, member of Deliver Fund, Cara Smith, that I had on. I can't remember the, the number, but if people look that up, amazing conversation. And uh, she talks about things from, you know, more obvious things like, um, you know, con room full of several women, condom wrappers everywhere, to, you know, matching tattoos. They've all got the same tattoo, oh, wow. which is you're branded by the pimp. Um, you oh. know, lots of, yeah, they look malnourished and there's fast food um, wrappers everywhere because they've been there for weeks and weeks and weeks. So, you know, when you hear the backstory, it's not the rape van pulling up and a guy with a ski mask getting out and throwing them in the van. They're being groomed. They're being preyed upon. There's usually people with trauma in their life. Maybe they ran away. Maybe they're just looking for that, you know, that father figure, whatever it is. And the next thing, they're manipulated to the point where they're selling their, their bodies and these pimps are getting all the money. So we think of trafficking and prostitution as separate, but it's all the same thing. And then you have even trafficking from the manual labor side there's a lot of you know whether it's the people working the fields some of them are being trafficked too 
Yeah, it's a, it's an, it's, that market's ridiculous. Um, I have family members in law enforcement that, that have told me uh, stories about what they deal with on the trafficking side. And like you just said, basically like indentured service, you know, they base, they're, they're doing a, uh, they're paying off their debt of coming into the country or being brought into the country by working for free for four or five years in these fields or these laborers jobs. Um, we've had uh, many cases of field workers, uh, undocumented field workers that, that call 911 for either uh, chemical exposures or, or injuries that you would think that they need to go to the hospital for. And they don't speak the language and the person that doesn't speak the language will speak for them. And I've been uh, on scene when I've seen, on scene when I've seen, right? Um, where, where these members of the fire department are begging these mem- these migrant workers to go to the hospital and they tell you that they cannot go to the hospital because they cannot miss work because they, w- they don't want to be sent back to their country. And so it's uh, it's definitely something that we deal with, especially in South Florida, you know, with the, the, the population that we have of, of immigration and the amount of people that we have coming in through so many different avenues and, and being injected into society. And anytime you have that vulnerable society, uh, member of society, somebody's going to exploit them, unfortunately. Yeah, and it's up to us to be extra pair of eyes. And sadly, you know, earlier in our career, we just weren't given the tools to even see that. So, not at all. Well, I know you ended up joining you know, the special operations community within your department, and then you know, USAR Task Force Two. What I'd love to do, because I know you've expanded on that a lot in other podcasts, is just talk about some specific incidents. So, you responded to Katrina. Have I got that right? Yes. Okay. So, you know. What I saw, it was it was a very strange time. We had 9-11, this is again through an English immigrant's eyes, where that 9-12 came in. You know, everyone banded together and it was seemingly really people trying to make the world better and, and help New York from outside and the New Yorkers themselves rolling up their sleeves and, you know, joining together. Katrina comes in and some of my Anaheim guys were on the USAR task force from, I forget which number it was, but they, they went out mm-hmm. as well. One of them was almost killed actually when the, the rotor wash pull, picked up a pallet and slammed it into his head. Um, but it seemed like the way the media portrayed that was very divisive and very negative. So the voices from the ground are really our best um you know, way of understanding what actually happened. Because if you listen to some of the media, the white people went and saved all the white people and left the black people on the roofs. So with that being said, talk to me about that experience through your eyes. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tread carefully on this one. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a member with a, a FEMA task force, um, a FEMA Florida task force two uh, out of Miami, Florida. And I've uh, been with them since 05. And um, so boots on the ground, uh, you know, the media is always going to exploit whatever the media exploits. The media needs a story. If it believes it needs, if it's furry, it needs, you know, they, they need something to put on the news and they're going to take any angle possible, especially now if we need information right now, whether it's on Twitter or on social media, and then we'll find out if it's true or not. But back in 05, I believe it was, this was 05, um, media uh, and social media wasn't where it is today. So a lot of the information that was coming in and out of there was days late. Um, from my Point of view when I when I when I arrived there, it was no different than any other deployment I've been at. Um, initially, um, there's a lot of you know staging and waiting uh, for all that red tape to get cleared. So I do understand what the frustrations are, especially on the FEMA side. Back then, especially more. And back then, there 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 happened to there seemed to be back then, and I've been in now for about 17 years almost. Um, in the beginning, there was a lot more FEMA red tape. That we had to be negotiated by my superiors in order 
for us to get boots on the ground into these major events. And a lot of things have to get checked, a lot of boxes need to get checked and before they actually put us in a position where we can start uh, uh, doing rescue. Uh, water needed to be at a certain level, uh, force protection, meaning meaning law enforcement or military had to have a good idea of what the situation uh, the situation was as far as like the threat level for first responders. Um, all these things need to get checked back then before we committed any members into an operation. Uh, guys, men and women think about this FEMA or this urban search and rescue programs uh, like something that's been around forever, and it really hasn't. Uh, FEMA is pretty new, even back when the Oklahoma bombing, uh, back in the 93 bombing of the World Trade Center. Uh, FEMA is a brand new concept in the world of, of first responders, okay? Uh, this is not something that's been around for 40, 50, 60 years. It just hasn't. So in 05, and the opportunities that it had to employ and uh, deploy this tactics uh, was still very new, and we were still very governed by 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 DC for back of for lack of better um, who's in charge of those deployments without breaking it down and making it very important. But we, uh, you know, no different, James, than any other deployment I've been on. Uh, disasters bring out the very best and the very worst in society. Uh, you have people that are going to exploit the position they find themselves in. Um, they're going to exploit the position that other people who are caught up in the disaster find themselves in to improve their position or make up some type of monetary gain from it. And, and you're also going to have the heroes, the unsung heroes that go out there and these disasters bring out the very best in humanity where they give, they have a bag of ice, they'll split it between three families. And the same on the same block, you have somebody that'll shoot you for a bag of ice just for themselves. Um, I've seen both ends of it and I've had a first and view front row seat to some of the worst disasters, uh, natural disasters and even man-made disasters, unfortunately, um, in, in my career. And every single time, I can almost predict the way the script's going to play out from the day that we arrive to the day that we leave. Let's say that we're there for two weeks. I know what to expect day one through day three, day three through day 10, and then during the demobilization process as more infrastructure starts getting rebuilt and law and order starts coming over the land. Um, in the beginning, it's very Wild West. And um, people are going to self-rescue. People are going to help each other but people are also going to exploit each other. Looters are going to come in and things are going to get sketchy. Um, you're, going to, you're going to do a lot of good rescue work. That's when you're going to save the most lives those first 48, 72 hours. Uh, that's the way it was in Haiti. That's the way it was in this last hurricane. We were just out in Fort Myers Beach, Hurricane Ian. Um, we, we saw a lot of devastation in Ian, but we made a lot of good rescues the first 48 hours that we were there. Um, we uh, have had opportunities to do a lot of cool things. And the media sometimes is our best friend, to go back to your question. The media sometimes is our best friend, and sometimes they're not. We've, we've done a pretty good job in Florida Task Force, too. Our PIOs are excellent. Our public information officers are excellent, and um, they maintain a very, very, very strong bond with all the local and national news stations, and they have a very open relationship with them where we understand their needs, to get their job done and understand our needs. We also understand each other's boundaries. And they know that if Florida Task Force 2 can get a crew, a uh, media crew, into the area safely, then we will get them in there safely, get what they need to get, and then get them out. And we've done this over and over and over. We're a very, very active team. We deploy every single year somewhere. And um, I've been tasked 
with, you know, take CNN around, take Fox around, take the, uh, the local news stations around and drive them around for an hour. So I'll get a reporter in the front seat, riding shotgun, I'll drive her around and the, and the cameraman in the back. Newspaper writers, they'll, they'll write around me all day and they'll go to calls with us. And, and we all have our, our role to play because um, they can market your team and get you the exposure that creates positive feedback and funding, but they can also destroy your team uh, and create division amongst society if you do not allow them the access that they need to complete their job. It's a relationship that I encourage, whether on the fire department side and the law enforcement side or in the urban search and rescue side. It's a relationship that I encourage people to foster and take care of because I promise you, the media is going to do what the media does until they know it affects James and they have a relationship with James. Until they know that it affects Rob and have a relationship with Rob. Our crews go out on these deployments every year and RPIOs are on first name basis texting back and forth with every major network in the area and in the country. And these guys and the, the stories that get put out and I'll challenge any of your listeners to go out there and just Google South Florida Task Force 2 disaster and every story you read is going to be a positive one or some positive spin because we've harbored and created those relationships. So I encourage everyone on the law enforcement side and the freaking FEMA side and the urban search and rescue and fire department side to create and, and, and strengthen these relationships with the news media stations. If you do not have a PIO, create the position. If you do not have a public information officer assigned to your fire department, assign someone and send them to public information officer school, the 40-hour class, and then they will get guidance and direction of how to interact with them. But we have to use these people to the best of our advantage. And in today's world, the media is king. So you need them on your side. Well, it's an interesting uh, kind of segue. I did an interview with a legendary journalist, Larry Doyle. And Larry was so revered back when journalism truly was, you know, was the news still before they had to make money and we found ourselves devolving to where we are now. But Larry lived on Sanibel Island. I was just to say, so Larry was, was so revered that uh, he was the guy that interviewed Nelson Mandela the day he came out. That's the wow. level of trust that this man had. So I got to interview him, but it was on Sanibel Island as I believe as Hurricane Ian was bearing down. And literally, I drove away. And I think the later that day is when it slammed into there and Sanibel Island was basically decimated. So talk to me about that response. One of my good friends is actually a firefighter in one of the neighboring uh, departments to, to uh, Fort Myers Beach. Um, and mm -hmm. he was talking about what he was seeing. But again, on the news, it almost sounded like a, the, the death tolls and some of these things were downplayed. And I'm not understanding why. So again, boots on the ground. What was your perception of that? Because obviously it was very, very near and dear and local to us here in Florida. Yeah. So thank you for the opportunity. So Hurricane Ian, um, I have to be honest with you, I'm going to give you my, uh, my, my opinion going into it. Another deployment. It's just another hurricane deployment. We're going to go there. We're going to walk around. We're going to search a couple of buildings. We may make a couple of rescues in the front end, but the, most of the deployment should be event, uh, not very eventful. It's just another hurricane to hit Florida. You guys across the country, we don't get excited about hurricanes in Florida. No, it's just, it's just what we do, right? It's just part of the background, just like alligators. So we, uh, we ended up going, uh, watching the storm, getting activated the day before the storm, watching the storm, uh, seeing where it was going. We have a, an excellent planning team. Our, like I said before, our team's been around for a while now, and they're very active. Um, so the governor of Florida and, and D.C., they both use us as a state asset. 
and as a national international asset at times in the Caribbean. So we we have uh, uh, our tentacles go into every direction of government, and they they keep us very informed. And it was the day before we started noticing that the media was saying the storm was heading up northwest of Fort Myers to the Tampa Bay area, which is the biggest market up there for news, right? And um, nothing that we were getting was showing that. Everything we were getting was showing that it was going south of that to, like you said earlier, the Naples, Sanibel, uh, Fort Myers Beach, Cape Coral area of the west coast of Florida, the southwest coast of the Gulf there. And um, as the storm grew bigger and bigger and bigger overnight, we started understanding that we were going to get a real big storm that just stalled over the Gulf of Mexico, over warm water, and was gaining strength. When these storms stall over warm water, they sit there and they build and churn and churn and create all types of uh, water issues with the, with the rise, and they create tide issues, and they create heavy, heavy rain issues. So it's that surge of the storm that creates the first layer of destruction. Um, after the, right before the wind and the rain hit. So, man, we started mobilizing everybody. We got an 80-member team together. I was one of the managers assigned to the rescue component, which is the, the technical rescue component uh, of the team, uh, which uh, at the time was uh, probably 46 members, I believe, we had assigned to us, myself and the other rescue team manager. And um, we deployed um, that night, like around uh, 7 p.m., the storm hit at 4 p.m. in the Fort Myers area, give or take, Fort Myers Beach area around 4 p.m. the day of the storm. And um, we were out the door by 7 p.m. because we couldn't get into the area coming from Miami and become part of the problem. So we had to we play our cards perfectly right to, as a storm moved north, at whatever speed the, north, the storm was moving, we were directly behind it with our convoy waiting for the area to clear to, um, to engage. So as soon as the storm cleared and we were just dealing with like tropical storm winds, not sustained, we were on the ground. The first reports we got, James, which got us into the Fort Myers Beach area was of a large building collapse. Um, the team had just come off fresh from the year before from working Surfside Congo collapse in Miami. We were there for 28 days. Um, so when they said building collapse, naturally, our antennas went up. We just had a recent exposure to that. And we had a seven-story building report collapse on Fort Myers Beach. And, and Fort Myers Beach wasn't our immediate due. So we uh, got permission to do a recon of the area. Our, our bosses and the state level uh, at that point send us. Uh, and we split our team. Half the team went to the Sanibel Marco Island area. The other half of the team, myself and the rescue guys, went to the Fort Myers Beach area. And we got to Fort Myers Beach somewhere around midnight. Um, I'm sorry, somewhere around 9 p.m. to the bridge that crosses from the mainland into uh, over the intercoastal into the Fort Myers Beach island uh, barrier reef. And it took us from 9 p.m. with heavy equipment um, to clear the roads of boats and yachts and beach sand and power lines and parts of houses um, from 9 p.m. to midnight to clear the bridge to actually get boots on the ground in Fort Myers Beach. So we can say the people that were affected by the storm were in the storm without first responders or infrastructure from 4 p.m. 
to right around 1 a.m. When we, when we were the first ones on the ground. And I believe the governor put out a tweet around 1 o'clock uh, that we were on the ground in Fort Myers Beach, Florida Task Force 2, and that we were affecting rescues. Um, that was eerie. It was immediately at that point that I realized that this wasn't a regular hurricane deployment, that we were in for one of the worst hurricane deployments since Hurricane Katrina that we had been on as a team. And we've been to Harvey, Michael, all of them, uh, Irma. Yeah, I forgot their names, but we've been to a bunch of hurricanes. And um, immediately I realized that it was going to be different. There was no roads left. There was very few structures standing. Uh, the ocean sand had taken over and consumed the entire barrier reef. Uh, we could not drive our trucks through there. We were at a stall. We had to do everything on foot. And if you've ever been in any part of the world where there is no electricity or power uh, for miles and miles and miles and miles, um, you can see a flashlight from two miles away. And that's all that I would see from a distance. I can just see little flashlights a mile away, two miles away, just popping out of debris and rubble. And we split our teeth as best possible. We started uh, getting a recon of the area. We weren't familiar with the island. Uh, our cell phone service, our satellite phones are not working at that point. We haven't put up our, our, our antennas yet. We haven't put up our, in our, any of our signals. Our comp people are still downrange. They haven't made it to where we are. We're ahead of the team. We're searching ahead of the line right now. We're using to use the firefighter term. And we're getting as deep as we can. We went over the bridge. We went right, which ended up being north. I don't know, north at the time. We went right of the bridge and south of the and left of the bridge. That's how we called it the first one. And the guys that went right of the bridge um, came across victims and casualties immediately. And uh, people with every type of injury you can imagine. There's no 911. We don't provide ambulances. Um, we're all paramedics, but we have docs or medics assigned to the team. The teams are built around a very paramilitary structure. So in order for you to provide medical care in a FEMA task force, um, you have to go through the FEMA medical specialist course. And that becomes your MOS or your job on urban search and rescue. So even though I'm a paramedic in my fire department, when I'm operating as a FEMA urban search and rescue provider, I do not provide medical care unless it's life-threatening immediate to the scope of my ability. But since they use us all over the country and we don't cross lines, the only people that can cross lines and provide treatment under the direction of a doctor as a paramedic in FEMA is if you take a medical specialist course. So we got our docs downrange. Um, they started checking people, bandaging people as we could. Every type of small injury you can imagine that you would expect from a storm, uh, nicks and cuts and bruises and, and hematomas to, to major trauma, traumatic injuries holes and angulated fractures and paralysis. And we started picking all the low-hanging fruit that we can get. And we worked for, from that point on, we worked 36 hours straight uh, without stopping or without relief or without infrastructure. The fire department was gone. There were no firehouses left in the Fort Myers Beach area. They had evacuated with everybody else to the mainland. They were unable to get back in the days after. Um, the people that stayed behind, uh, they weren't killed. They were washed away by the surge or they just survived by miracles. The stories I heard of survival from that storm in particular last year were amazing. People riding the roofs of their house in 14-foot waves, floating on roofs of the house with their, with their wife and kids, only to get tangled up with some mangroves and ride out a freaking 100-mile-an-hour windstorm. And they said it was just lightning and, and water spouts and pitch black waves knocking them around on the roof of their house all night long until the storm flew over and the water receded. Um, Casualties like on, I mean, like no other storm we've seen before. We were finding, uh, you know, a lot of loss of life. Um, our team was finding a lot of loss of life everywhere we went. Um, uh, 
people were coming up to us, telling them what they were, telling us where the bodies were right when we got there. Um, you know, my neighbor's dead. My neighbor's hanging out his window. My neighbor's dead in his attic. Uh, I have somebody stuck in my roof. Um, we go, we check on it, and we move on. Those are black tags, you know, and, and that's hard to do in the beginning, you know, because we want to help just like everybody else does, and they need help. They've been waiting for since see someone in uniform um, since a storm happened to help them. And here we are telling them that we have to keep moving, you know, because we're trying to get a picture of the land. We're trying to get a, a 500 foot picture of what we're looking at so we can start dividing our labor and our resources in the most effective way possible and know who to call in. But the storm ended up hitting so much of the coast that we were alone for a couple of days, um, our task force in the area, because the system got so depleted immediately that they needed help all the way from Marco Island north to Tampa. And the storm had caused so much destruction and so many of the teams that were in the Orlando area staging could not get over because the storm sat over them for a while and they couldn't travel in convoy in that that wing. So they got stuck where they were in staging. We came from the south and we ended up working on the beach, which is about a six and a half mile, give or take, I may be wrong, it may be seven, a six and a half mile barrier reef um, for the first couple of days by ourselves. So we had seven miles of destruction, six and a half miles of destruction for one task force until eventually, you know, day five, six, seven, um, we we got the FEMA help that we needed as a team to continue the operation. But we worked, you know, with those 80 guys, we worked around the clock, 24 hours a day, within the rules of engagement of the area, within the rules of engagement of FEMA, within the rules of engagement of the state, within, within the rules of engagement of the local uh, authority having jurisdiction to affect as many evacuations, rescues, and address as many human needs as possible without infrastructure. Um, it was, uh, it was a, a lot of work, and I'm very, very, very proud of the team on that deployment. We had never, as a team, evacuated an entire island. We set up pickup rally points. We evacuated high-rise buildings. There must have been 25 buildings over 20 stories that we evacuated on our own with squads of eight guys. I'm talking about stair chairs for 20 stories with eight guys, that's an eight hour day. We Their, their legs were hurting so much that they made a t-shirt of it and they called it the quad squad. <laughs> all they did was stairs for two days straight. Um, rescues, uh, hardcore rescues, water rescues, um, all types of work that I'm very proud of. But what a deployment, James. So many things and so many lessons learned. Well, firstly, I'm so glad I asked you because, like I said, my one friend, because I, I was, based on what we're seeing on the news, I was thinking, as we all do in Florida, oh, it's another hurricane, you know, and then you think about that area, it's a very wealthy area, so I'm like, okay, well, these will be well-built houses, everyone will be fine, but then, you know, my friend told me, well, look, we've got, like everywhere else, we have got some poor areas and places where they just never sold their land to make a big, fancy house and there are trailer parks and these kind of things so then it changed the shift and then you're seeing the footage coming in i think it was fort myers beach of their stations flooded like you know almost like nipple height the you know the rigs mm-hmm. are obviously out of service they're trying to just pull some of their gear off and that put in perspective well shit that's what the fire station looks like what does the rest of the the, you know, the place look like and then i'm speaking to larry and his house is completely destroyed and he had a house on stilts the first first floor was it was the parking garage um so but i still feel like it was downplayed to so many people so it's so important that we hear from people like yourself that can paint this picture not only of all the great things that you and your team did but also what the residents suffered and and the actual death toll that happened here 
Yeah, it was, uh, you know how it is, uh, when you're on these types of incidents, uh, you're so insulated from society. We can't talk to our families because the phones are not working. You're working. The hours feel like minutes and, and days feel like hours. And anybody that's been on any type of deployment knows that, whether it's military or fire. You don't know what's happening in the news. You don't know what's being shared. It's, that's the common theme. And, you know, people would send me a message. Hey, I got something you guys in the news when I would get to service in a certain area of the island. And I'm like, I have no idea what they're talking about. I don't know what the news is saying. There's no people in there at the time because the news couldn't get in themselves. Um, but we, uh, we, we really, really, really were uh, stretched to our limit. And the, the, the damage, like you said, your friend's house on stilts, there was no rhyme or reason as to what stood and what fell. Um, I went up to these, like I said, 20-story hotels on the ocean. 20-story hotels, concrete block and rebar, fireproof buildings, okay? And the first floor balcony, gone. Second floor balcony on the ocean side, gone. The sand underneath the 20-story building, 10 feet of it are gone. It's just pillars of foundation into the earth exposed. And the third floor balcony where the water stopped had exposed rebar sticking out of the bottom of the balcony. The, 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 the ocean came in three stories high and wiped out everything that it could. And the power of that water pushing through that entire barrier reef was unseen un in the history of Florida. It had never, never happened, never once. And like you said, uh, we, we, you think about these places as places where rich folk li live, not at all. Uh, Fort Myers Beach, I found out while I was there that was one of the few places left where you could live and there wasn't a Hilton, there wasn't a, a uh, Marriott, there wasn't any of that. None of those big hotel companies have moved in yet. So everything was mom and pop. All the restaurants, everything. There's no big box stores, no food chains, and it was in paradise. And so the people that lived there were generations deep, and all those homes are gone. And um, I, I can't imagine anybody rebuilding them. Um, you're going to see now, I predict, uh, all the big chain hotels and are going to be the only ones to afford getting back in there after the storm. But tremendous amount of damage, uh, bodies, and, and, you know, we have to set up a, uh, they set up a, a, a morgue, for lack of better terms, the disaster management teams did. They came down and they set up a portable, a mobile morgue, and through the Lee County Sheriff's Office, they operated in conjunction with our team uh, to identify and get the bodies uh, to the next again. Um, our members performed flawlessly, and um, it was around week, at the end of week one, I want to say, and I could be off of the timeline, so if anybody's listening that was there with me, I apologize. It's a fog, um, and I don't have notes for it right now. We weren't planning on talking about this, but somewhere around the end of week one, um, we started getting help from the FEMA for task forces. So, you know, the FDNY guys got there from New, from New York, the Cal guys got there from Cal 2, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and all the usual guys that we deploy with and work with on FEMA deployments uh, made it into town. And they, uh, they joined the fight and hung out and, and helped us do our secondary and third searches of the area. And until we cleared every single building, every single rubble pile, I'm talking about the layers of search that we did there are unprecedented in Florida. We had never done that. We actually did seven miles at the end. We were done searching every structure at the end of two weeks for three times in every crawl space, in every basement, in every attic, on boat, on foot, in the ocean, on every way you can search a building. We ran uh, live and cadaver dogs 
for seven miles for two days straight through every road pile and every structure. And if they stopped and got a hit, we commit a team to it and got it down to the ground, make sure there was nothing in there. And um, it was, you know, leave no one behind and leave no remains behind. And thankfully, we were, we've been gone for quite a time now and they've never found anyone else after we left. So I'm very proud of our members. Well, I mean, again, it's, it's incredible. And thank you for telling the story. I didn't, I don't plan any of these conversations, but I mean, this is something that, you know, hasn't really been discussed apart from two people off mic. You touched on another incident. I want to hit this and then we'll get out of this whole, you know, this disaster topic. But you said about natural and man-made. I'm assuming that was the Surfside collapse. A lot of my friends, especially in the mental health side, responded down there to be support. Dustin Hawkins and Bull and some of these other guys. Um, talk to me about that event because you have this hurricane. We know it's coming. You know, we're bracing for it. Now you have a condo complex that was poorly maintained that had a leak and unbeknownst to anyone, all of a sudden, the whole thing fails. So, okay. So, June 24th, uh, when the building fell, I was uh, I had just I was flying to Corley Moore in Oklahoma City to do a speaking gig at one of, at his conference for two firefighters that had, uh, had been killed in the line of duty. And so, I land uh, in my connecting flight in Atlanta from Fort Lauderdale, and my phone is going crazy. And I'm like, what's happening? And I see uh, building collapse, building collapse, building collapse. It's like 7 a.m. in the morning and my connecting flight. So I started getting on the news and I see what happened. I made a couple of calls home. They're like, yeah, we don't know yet. Um, it's in uh, Miami-Dade County Fire Rescue's jurisdiction. Uh, they're going to they're gonna have the resources. We don't know how big the building is. There, no one had a picture in their mind yet of the scope, how bad it was. We figured, you know, Miami-Dade County being 70-plus firehouses, and being one of the major players in the entire eastern seaboard of the United States, we, we thought, hey, if it's small enough, they're going to handle it. So I continued my way up to Oklahoma City, and um, it was while I was up there that the team was deployed. So I was very late to the party. Um, but the team was there for 28 days total. Um, it was uh, when I made it to uh, Surfside, it was different from other uh, deployments because we're in our backyard. A lot of the guys live minutes from there. I myself live 30 minutes from there. Um, so we normally don't deploy that close to the home. And um, not because we knew anyone there, just because that insulation that we benefit from when we're gone on deployment, we didn't have it. And, and it was very smart of the team leaders to keep our members on site. Um, it wasn't a popular decision, but a lot of our the team was kept insulated on site for that reason. And they deployed to some of them minutes from their home and stayed there for the duration um, of the deployment um, during the search. Where I will say that it was different is the fact that there came a point during the operation where it was understood that it was very improbable that weeks into a collapse, you were going to be finding anyone alive. So it became a search and recovery mission. And, and, and our mindset is not that of search and recovery, where in fact, when it turns into a recovery operation, funding seizes, seizes on the stops on the FEMA side and on the state side, and our urban search and rescue teams get sent home. Right. And um, so this time, no one was ever sent home because it was in our backyard. And we had made a commitment to the victims, families, and everyone else in the area, whether it was a formal commitment or not. Um, it was an understood agreement that. We were going to keep digging as a team until 
everybody in that building that was known to be missing, 100 plus, uh, would be found and identified. Um, so that's what they did when they were there for the over for a month, almost over. And um, that tempo of operation as a leader was very difficult for our leadership because, like I said, our mindset is that of search and rescue. Uh, you pull up to a scene that needs to be searched and your level of operational tempo is at a certain height. And anybody that goes up to a hot scene, uh, whether it's on the law enforcement or the fire side, understands what I mean by your operational tempo being very high, your level of uh, situational awareness and and uh, and productivity, and your the time you work rest cycles are very short because you need to stay on task as much as possible to the greatest amount of good for the most amount of people, right? Or to achieve the mission that you're on. Well, when you change the mission on these dogs and they're just search and rescue dogs and not search and recovery dogs, they're going to keep searching and recovering like they're search and rescuing. So bringing that mindset down and to become more meticulous, more detailed, and listen, we're going to make sure that we do this in a way that no one gets hurt, and we're going to be effective and efficient and thorough, and we're going to work to the best of our ability uh, to make sure everyone here gets a respectful send home. Um, was a diff- that, that was the biggest challenge. Not so much the physical challenge, but the mental and emotional component that came with that was different than any other deployment that we've ever been on because we're just not built for that. We're a urban search and rescue team. Uh, no team is built for that. I spoke to guys from New Jersey that were there, from Pennsylvania that were there, guys from uh, Orlando that were there, uh, Task Force 4, guys from Task Force 6 in the West Coast. And, you know, the sentiment was pretty much the same. Everybody was glad they were there, but they were having a, a like a, it was a challenge to flip that s- switch to, I don't need to work myself down to a pulp in the next eight hours because they need me for 28 more days, you know? And normally we're not on deployment for 28 more days because we're a certain rescue team. Um, it's funny that you mentioned mental health because um, I, I'm a, I, I was a peer supporter. I'm not a peer supporter anymore. I, I did a bunch of mental health things when I was a training officer for my fire department um, back between 13 and 18. And um, I still uh, have a lot of friends in the, in the mental health coalition in South Florida. So during the deployment, there was an issue with the construction workers. Um, there was people on heavy machinery on these buckets and movers that were helping us directly uh, de-layer the pile one section at a time. So the pile was broken down to different grids, and the grids were broken down to smaller grids, smaller boxes. If you can picture like a tic-tac-toe that never ends um, drawing. And so these guys had the same drawings we had, so we were speaking the same language. And, and they were sitting there with their buckets and very gently and surgically removing one inch at a time it, with these giant megaton hydraulic buckets that can move earth at, 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 an, at an amazingly freaking pace. They were using them so gentle where you can like move an inch at a time of earth. These guys are great at what they do. And we, I, I, we, we look at them and, and to give them a sign and they move a layer, move a layer. But what happened is that when you find a body, they also had a front row seat of that from their bucket. And they sit there for the entire removal process, identification pro- process, bagging process, uh, picking up process. And it became a very meticulous dig up after that. You don't do with the bucket anymore. So you're, you're in the regarding troubles in my hand to get the bodies out. So where does the mental health component come in? I'm there, I'm there one day and someone came up to me and says, hey, Rob, you Spanish? I said, I do. They're like, oh, hi, I'm so-and-so from the coalition. Um, 
I need you to go with us at noon uh, behind this building here. And we're doing an off stop on the pile. And every single construction worker is going to be back there. And half of them don't speak English. And we need to talk to them about mental health, what they're seeing, what they're doing, because the guys are having a hard time. This is about a week into it. And they've been seeing these guys did not sign up for this. That's not their job. They move things. They don't move people. And um, especially people who've been buried in debris for that long. Um, it's very impressive for someone that's never seen it. Let alone some, I mean, for someone that's seen it all the time, let alone, for someone, let alone for someone who's never seen it. So we went back there and, and they had a, we had an open, uh, basically debrief. And we went around the room and it was over 40, 40 construction workers there. And they all talked in Spanish and English. And uh, the, their bosses talked and the operators talked and the foreman talked and, and they all let it out. And there was a lot of crying and hugging. And we tried to normalize it as best we could. We told them, told them what to look for, what to expect, what's normal, what's not normal, what they expected, what we expected from them. Uh, we, the, that we were approachable, that they, that for them not to think that they had to work through something that they didn't understand without talking to us. And uh, we tried to normalize an abnormal situation for them as best as we could um, in English and Spanish to civilians, not first responders, uh, to keep them on mission because we needed them and those machines for what ended up being another three weeks. Um, that, was a, that was a challenge. And um, I walked out of there, you know, feeling like I hope this worked and I'm glad I did it because I needed it as well. I needed it as well. And I got an opportunity to speak to them from a rescuer point of view who speaks their language, um, who has a lot of similarities to them and their families and tell them that I was uncomfortable with it and I was going to have a hard time dealing with it. And this is how I was going to approach it. And I encouraged them to do the same. And that this was normal because this is abnormal. So that the way that we're feeling abnormal is absolutely acceptable and normal at that moment. But we're in the middle of the fight. It's round six of a 12 round fight. So I can't have them check out on me, you know? So it wasn't a total debrief. It was a debrief, but keep fighting debrief. It was like a in-between round coaching session. You know, Bob and Lee, you're, you're walking into his left hook, you know, but so we, it was that kind of conversation that I was a part of. I wasn't a part of any of the major debriefs at the end. And actually I heard uh, through the grapevine that one of the members uh, of the construction company that we worked with very closely ended up passing away from self-inflicted wounds uh, later the year. Oh. Well, speaking of that, I mean, you've led us through so many of these, you know, career calls. We haven't talked about Haiti or some of the other ones that you responded to as well. But so many of us accumulate this, this, you know, macabre encyclopedia of stories and images and losses. Um, some of us, I think, in my opinion, were fortunate enough to have things that happen early life that set us up for success later and has a slightly stronger foundation. Some of us have a very rocky foundation before we put the uniform on based on our journey through and you're smiling. So that might be you too. <laughs> um, talk to me about that. I mean, how, you know, what, what are your highs and your lows when it comes to the mental health side with the high up tempo your career has had so far? Um, it's part of the process. It's just, a, I, I'm not a mental health expert, so, so bear with me. Um, there's a lot of guys and girls that do a, a great job, including yourself, in that arena. Um, I'm not the poster child for their mental health. Uh, I've messed up. I've, I've been very fortunate. I've never had any addiction issues. I've never um, gone down the road where I've thought, you know, man, I need help right now. Although I do get help all the time. 
I have a therapist and I'm very proud of that. I think anybody who is a thinker and then considers themselves an intellectual should have a therapist that somebody needs to listen to your thoughts other than yourself. And then they need to normalize your feelings for you. Um, I shouldn't be answering my own questions all the time. So myself and my therapist, uh, Jeffrey, he is a home run. I've been with him for a couple of years and, and him and I are, we make things happen. We, we, we go many layers deep and every once in a while he'll, pl- he'll plant a little seed in my head that'll go off three days later and we'll have a good conversation about it. Um, but he and I uh, talk about all these things because I believe that uh, when I got on the job, just like everyone else, I had no idea uh, other than I was going to go do a bunch of cool shit uh, that any of this was going to build up or affect me at any point. Um, that it was gonna, I was going to lose friends over it, that uh, PTS or PTSD or mental health issues were going to be part of my career process, and that I was going to make relationships with people that were no longer going to retire with me. I was going to go to their funerals because they just couldn't deal with it, with, deal with it adequately. Um, I felt impervious to all that, just like every young guy does uh, back when we got on. I'm hoping that now with the uh, exposure and awareness that's being put out in fire academies and, and the movement to like allow these members to talk about it when they get on and, and deal with it appropriately throughout their career. Um, you know, if you, if you stretch out every day, you know, chances are you're probably not going to have some type of catastrophic explosion of your, of your calf when you go off for a run, you know, but if you never stretch out, it's a probability, not a possibility that you're going to get hurt. Um, so these kids are stretching more than we do stretching their brain more than we did. Um, we were just part of that society where it just wasn't what was something that we either uh, admitted to affecting us or just were cool with ta- not talking about it. Uh, I have a lot of friends, though, close, close friends that are, you know, recovering from addictions. Um, in a way, have been, you know, so we call it the firefighter sleepover camp. And, uh, you know, so they went away and, and for rehab or they went away for the mental health uh, treatment and they came back and they're, they're, they're advocates of it and they talk about it openly to anybody that listen. You know, God bless them. And they and I've lived through them as, as a supporter of their processes. I've had, um, like I said earlier, friends that that ended their lives whose career paths were very similar to mine. And that's probably when it first hit me, James, that shit, this can happen to me, too. Because being in the beginning, just a young dude, happy to go do cool shit and come back with some gnarly war stories. Um, I wasn't aware of how it can affect me. And then I got to a point where I'm like, listen, man, I'm teaching everywhere. This is the home run. This job, I'm built for this shit. No one's built for this shit. No one is built for this shit. And uh, I saw one of my really good uh, mentors and people I looked up to and friends, you know, end his own life. And he was somebody that I was aiming to be like and emulate and model my behaviors um, after because he was so successful in everything he did. And at his funeral, I had that moment where I thought to myself, this could be my funeral. If it happened to him, it could happen to me. He had everything going for him. He was so full of life. Hardest guy in every room, teaching at every freaking conference. And here I am, you know, at his funeral. Um, that was the first time that I had that, oh shit moment. This can happen to me. Um, little things in between deployments in Haiti and, and stuff like that. Um, when it builds up is when you come for me. I'm not speaking in general. When it builds up for me is when if my personal life is not 100% and then I go through this professionally, um, I have a harder time dealing with it. So like during my first marriage and my child and, and Haiti and stuff like that, those deployments where you really, really get tested and you really are in those precarious positions where you're like, hey, I can die at any point during this operation. Or you have a couple of near misses and, 
and you come home and it hits you a couple of days later and it's no longer cool because now your life at home is not where it's supposed to be. And that, that, those little things start building up and it's almost like death by like a thousand little cuts. Not one big freaking knife to the, to the heart. It's just a thousand little cuts and eventually, you know, you bleed out. And that's what happened to me. So that the accumulation of that made me seek therapy and uh, surround myself with people that it was okay to talk about those vulnerabilities. People relate more to your vulnerabilities than they do to your successes. And um, I strongly believe that as well. So I'm very open when it comes to talking about my challenges and I surround myself. You look at my core group of friends, you're like, holy crap, what is this circus? Like these guys are all you know, former recovering this or that or the others, or, or they've been away to this. They, they teach mental health that. But these are the people that I'm okay with being vulnerable with because they keep it real and they've been there. And I can't catch, I can't get myself to, to talk about the way that I feel or the issues I'm having or sessions with my therapist, with people that don't admit to those vulnerabilities. Then I feel like I'm being judged or like I'm not enough. And that might be in my own head, but I don't want to give my energy and my vulnerabilities to people that approach the fire service like that because it's changed. It really has changed. And like you said, uh, between all the regular career calls, just fire department, 911 calls, uh, the deployment, uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas um, and Coral Springs, uh, just so many things that, that, that we get to be a part of that never go away. And it took me a while to normalize those emotions and those questions and those intrusive thoughts um, throughout my life. A smell that reminds me of this. Okay, Rob, that's normal. Your, your brain is playing the matching game. It's constantly doing that. Good brain to do that. And the second that I would tell myself it was normal and I normalized the thought, the thought no longer bothered me and it wasn't nagging and I wasn't trying to figure it out. It was uh, a lot of self-healing through understanding that I'm not made of stone, understanding that these things accumulate and then speaking to my therapist and making myself vulnerable to the members that I work with that helped me work through this process as a man and as a fireman. Because before I put on that firefighter outfit, before I do anything, I'm just a dude, just like everybody else. And we're all human and we're all people. And, and, and if, you're not, if you're not a people person, you're in the wrong business. But we're in the business of people. You know, absolutely. Well, again, thank you for that vulnerability. This is what people need to hear. They know you as you know the the founder of National Rescue, Rescue Consultants, which we'll get to in a second. They know you, you know, as this Task Force Two member and all this stuff. But we are just people in a uniform. You know, whether you remember the SAS or a Delta Force or you know a, a USAR tech or whatever it is, we all went to school. You know, we all started off running around a playground. It's just we're not, you know, forged like a Spartan from birth to prepare you for this journey. The 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 mentor that you lost, was that Matt Negley that you're talking about? Yes, it is. Yeah. So that sent a ripple through the fire service, obviously, especially locally here. I mean, I was Orange County when, when he died in uh, Orlando. Mm-hmm. Um, you touched on Parkland. I just want to hit that very quickly and then we'll we'll go to to the training that you offer. I had um, Tony and Tori uh, Gonzalez on the show. Uh, I had a couple of the guys from Coral Springs as well. We've just had you know, even more horrendous shootings. We had the anniversary of the Avaldi shooting the other day. And what breaks my heart is 
it'll be a shiny object in the media for a couple of days. People will try and kill each other over weapons ownership, and then they'll forget about the kids and the families and just move on. And the responders. So if you you know would like to, I'd love to just hear again that event through your eyes because I don't think we can hear these stories enough to remind us that we have to address the multifaceted approach that is the violence, not only in our schools, but outside our schools as well. So just a brief, uh, before I even get into it, uh, Tony Gonzalez, I'm sorry, uh, Anthony Gonzalez, yeah, Tony Gonzalez, uh, Gonzo, uh, affectionately referred to by all of us. He's a Task Force 2 guy, one of the best guys, stand-up gentleman, and a great chief officer. He just got made God bless him and his daughter as well for what they went through. And him being that day on that scene, you know, I had a couple of conversations with him um, on scene. Uh, leading up to Stoneman, uh, which is funny, and I just, I'm just a guy that showed up to the call with a bunch of other guys that tried to do our best. Um, but I'll give you my POV uh, for that call. Basically, uh, 2013, like I think I mentioned earlier, to 2018, I was running a training division for my fire department. Um, during that time, uh, I sat on a committee of uh, a unified committee for the county I work in in Broward uh, to come up with a, what we were referring to as an, an, uh, an active shooter policy. We didn't have a, uh, a unified active shooter policy, and we knew that as a county we needed one. But there were, the, this kind of event would require a county response. Now, no city in the county was gonna, going to be able to handle that significant event on their own. And so somewhere around 2013, we started training for it. Um, I took an interest in it. And uh, at the time, I was, uh, like I said, running training for my fire department. I became really good friends with uh, Jason Pellegrino, um, who's a, a lieutenant for the, fire for the police department in my city. And he was in charge of training for them. And we started working together. And he was, a, he was another high-speed guy that loved training. So we hit it off right away. We do lunch together in our 40-hour schedule and talk about police and fire training all the time. He was very inclusive in his training, and he's like, yeah, dude, let's get our guys together and come up with something uh, to make it happen. I took him to a bunch of meetings. He loved the meeting, and we ended up playing well together, and, and that forged a relationship where over the next, from 2013 to 2018, when the shooting happened, him and I were just like training our entire fire department. We were taking over schools during spring break elementary schools and running, you know, 50 cops or 50 firefighters, and we, were, we got funding for it to pay for people that are off duty. We got the hospitals involved, our dispatchers. It was great. We were hitting home runs at every level um, for things that I thought we would never, ever do, ever. Because um, this is not Columbine. This is not Aurora. This is not that place. This doesn't happen where I work. Parkland, really Parkland. And that's, that's one of the nicest communities in Broward County. You know, Parkland has more hockey players and NFL players per capita, I think, than anybody in, in Broward County as far as residents. Um, so leading up to it, I got to tell you, I first thought that it was never going to happen, and but I valued it tremendously, and I was very proud of uh, being part of the of the wave uh, that was coming uh, through Broward County at the time, uh, so that we can come up with a policy to respond to this event. So the day of the event, I had returned to shift uh, from forty hour after being gone for five years, uh, wearing polyester in an office job at a training center um, in Coral Springs. Actually, I ended up. Uh, getting reassigned to a, the truck at my firehouse. Um, and in January, January 13th was my first shift back on a fire truck. And February 14th was uh, Marjorie Solomon Douglas. So I'd only been back on the road for like maybe four or five shifts um, uh, when that happened. 
So we were grabbing uh, dinner at a local grocery store. Uh, I had just gotten back in the truck and my driver uh, turns to me and says, hey, did you hear that? And I said, what? He goes, uh, there was a shooting. Uh, there was a shooting right now going on at uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. He goes, what's the world coming to? Can you believe that there's kids in that school fighting and shooting each other right now? That's such a nice school. And I thought to myself, what's the world coming to, man? Kids aren't safe anywhere as a father. Like you put them in this nice school, in these nice neighborhoods, and here they are fighting and shooting each other. I'm like, that's probably over a girl. And, and so we, we, we drove away. As we drive away, I'm listening to their tactical channel. I'm heading back to the firehouse, and I hear uh, dispatch come in and say there's more shooting, there's more shooting. First unit's on scene. Police officers saying they're shooting. There's I can hear gunshots in the background. There's somebody in the school, somebody shooting with a rifle, and it got real, real fast. And I'm like, oh, it's a gang fight. And from a gang fight, it turned into, oh, my God, this is an active this is an active killer. This is really happening. This is real world. But there's no way we're going to get there. And it's probably not what it is. You know how we think. It's not going to be that. It's going to be anything but that. And um, so I uh, pulled into the firehouse. I made it to right about to the uh, firehouse uh, day room with all the groceries for dinner. About 10 bags in each hand because I'm... Daddy didn't raise no quitter. I ain't doing two trips. <laughs> and I'm about to drop the bags off in the kitchen table. And these guys are asking for help and dispatching units. And I self-dispatched. I, I got in the truck and started driving over there. Um, I, I told our chief that we were going. At the time, our chief was very okay with it. Um, and we deployed over there. I uh, went en route somewhere when I got airtime. was somewhere when I was about five minutes south when I finally was able to get on the air. I didn't want to interrupt their communications. And um, I just got a, I got a location for the, uh, the casualty collection point, um, which was a cross street of Holmberg and Pine Island. And I told the driver, hey, you know where that is? He said, yeah. So can you drive any faster? And he tells me, and he tells me I'm out of my seat. I can see him butt out of his seat, pedal to the metal. And the truck's got a governor, so we're doing 65 no matter what. And uh, he goes, this is the fastest I can go. And uh, we ended up pulling up, PD saw us, waved us in, pulling around a bunch of parents that were there to pick up their kids, chaotic, up to where I see a lot of fire rescue guys and trucks at this corner of this intersection. And I pulled this ladder truck right up to it. I'm the only suppression unit there. That should have been a clue. I had no business being there. So as soon as I get off, I'm met by the Coral Springs EMS chief who said, I tell him, chief, what do you need? And I can see there's kids being treated and kids coming in golf carts with uh, gunshot wounds and the school's evacuating and the parents are running in. And um, he says, first thing I need is to get that effing fire truck out of the CCP. This is where rescues are, the ambulances are coming here to take patients to the hospital. So I turned to my driver, I said, hey, Steve, take the truck out of here. He said, hey, what do you want? And I go, I don't care, just not here. And that's the last time I saw him for eight hours. <laughs> I never saw him again after that, uh, for eight hours. Um, we started working in the casualty collection point, uh, treating kids, getting them on, on rescues. Um, immediately, the first wave of rescues transported, I want to say maybe the first 10 kids, trauma alerts, um, gone. So it, it immediately absorbed the first 10 to 14 rescues that were there. They were gone. And so we were waiting for additional rescues to come in. Um, the guys in Coral Springs um, had worked with me 
uh, in training and they knew that we were all part of the same uh, coalition when it came to rescue task forces uh, and the treatment of patients inside and tourniquets and chest seals and all that. And I uh, ended up uh, getting assigned by one of the members operate, uh, running operations for them uh, at the Rescue Task Force 1, RTF-1, was given to me. And they told me, Rob, you're RTF-1. Go find uh, a bunch of guys and meet by the mule, which is like uh, this vehicle with SWAT guys that were going to bring us in. And so I went around and James, when I looked around to create a rescue task force, my crew was gone, getting patients somewhere and just couldn't get back. And all the ambulances were gone and there was nothing left but a bunch of fire trucks with a bunch of salty old firemen that went to training and said, we're never going to do this shit. This is for the ambulance guys. <laughs> and that became my first rescue task force. And I walked up to them. And I said, hey, I need you guys to grab chest seals, tourniquets, everything you have. I need a, we're, gonna, we're creating a, a seven-member RTF. They're asking for seven members right now. And they're like, oh, where do I get that from? Where do I do this? Who, us? Where, where, where's everybody else? I'm like, we're all going now. So we ended up uh, getting a bunch of guys in there. They were gung-ho, jumped right in. It was, uh, it was uh, a home run. Now, I know that you had Chief Babinick on. And uh, I'm going to throw that man all the kudos in the world. He's the city manager now. Um, you talk about leadership under fire, like literally under fire. Um, hindsight's twenty twenty. So now with all the all the reports and everything that came out, we know that when we were there, he was gone, the shooter. When we were there, the shooter was gone. Real soon after we arrived. It was kill, 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 gone. And we were getting delayed information from the talk, from the tactical, tactical operations center, uh, from the light, from the cameras that we believe or they believe to be real-time information right? According to the reports that came out afterwards, and it was on a delay. So we thought the killer was still moving through the building as we were outside providing medical care to these kids. Um, Chief Babinick, I still call him Chief Babinick, he's the city manager, uh, was out there and he and his training chief, Rob McGilloway, uh, turned to me. Uh, at one point, McGilloway did not Chief Babinick. He was busy doing chief things. He had no business time in and Chief Babin, uh, my training buddy, uh, Rob McGilloway, turned to me and said, hey, um, grab everything you can grab. Um, you're going to go in with me to go pick a kid up that's outside that needs to be pulled out. Um, I said, all right, cool. I grabbed the backboard and a bunch of stuff that I can grab, tourniquets, chest seals and all that. I gave my RTF position with another member, and I jumped into the back of his Suburban in the back cargo area. Threw the backboard in there, threw everything in there, jumped in, they shut the gate. Chief Babinick rode in the front right. Chief McGilloway drove. We got in the Suburban. We drove past officers that were, you know, taking positions of security um, over medians, against traffic, into the school parking lot, up to the front foyer area, at which point we got communications that there was uh, the shooter was in the second floor or third floor. I may be wrong what floor he was on, uh, attempting to shoot out windows, to uh, shoot out the windows, and um, for everybody to seek, uh, seek cover. All first responders, all police and fire, seat cover, seat cover. And we stopped the vehicle. I had a conversation in the front that I couldn't hear. And uh, they got out. And this is a funny part of the story, which is a very uh, somber occasion, right? They both get out and they hide on the passenger side behind the engine block on the ground. And I'm still in the back and I can't open the hatch from the inside. And so I'm knocking on the glass 
like, hey, guys, you forgot something, right? <laughs> and then they, they, they opened open the back for me and let me out. Anyways, uh, during this time, this is a story that not a lot of people have heard. Actually, who might be the first person I ever say a story to uh, on a podcast? And I'll say it very proudly. I remember it like it was yesterday. Um, Chief Babinick was given a bulletproof vest by, by one of his police officers. I can picture the police officer putting it on him as he's talking. He's literally being dressed by the police officer. He's on the radio giving orders and commands. Um, he was wearing a vest that said police in the back. And he was the only one wearing a vest. None of us had vests at this time or helmets. They weren't issued for either fire department. And uh, it was at this time that he removed his vest and threw it back in the vehicle. And laid on the ground, seeking cover behind an engine block with his guys that also did not have vests. And when asked why did he wear his vest, he was said that he was not going to be wearing a vest if his members did not have vests. Um, his instinct for self-preservation was trumped by his instinct for leadership. At uh, that moment, literally under fire. And I had that, oh shit moment. This guy's a real deal. Like, we're in trouble, and he just took off his vest. And because none of us had and uh, we were there for a while. Situation calmed down. Saw a lot of bad things, and uh, ended up uh, staying there till past 10 p.m. This happened early in the afternoon, right before school let out, somewhere between two and three p.m. And we didn't get back to the firehouse till close to midnight after the debrief. After we had all the special uh, teams come in and talk to all of us that responded, they transported us to a to a forming arts center where they can fit all. 80 or 100 of us in that room. Um, there was guys still with blood on their shirts and their pants. And and our medical director was there. And he had blood on his button-down shirts and sleeves rolled up. And um, we got spoke to by everybody and went back to the firehouse. And again, you're so insulated. Not a phone call, not a text. None of that ever happened, right? Because minutes go by like seconds while you're on that scene. And you don't know what's happening in the outside world. And I remember clear as day walking back into my firehouse and the first thing when I walk into the firehouse to my left is the day room and Donald Trump is on TV talking about Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. And that was the first time in my career where I, I see the president of the United States talking about a call that I just cleared. And it was, a, it was like that, oh, shit, this is a big moment. You know, um, between what I just said and when I got there to where it ended, there's so many interactions that happen and so many unfortunate things that we dealt with and so many heroic moments, so many leadership moments and so many frustrations that I can be here and do another 12 hour podcast just on that. Out of respect to everybody that passed and the people that served, I'm, uh, I'll keep those memories to myself. You mentioned Frank Babinek. I interviewed him with Chris Spater, and it's funny. Actually, we did an entire conversation. I went to another interview a little bit later. They borrowed my memory card and ended up accidentally wiping the interview. My oh. fault. I should have downloaded it prior to that. But anyway, lesson learned. So we ended up doing it twice. It was, it was beautiful because then I got to talk to, the, to these guys again. The presentation that they put on, which I watched in... I think it was the Orlando Fire Conference or one of the one of the local ones in Central Florida is incredible. Matching the you know all the radio traffic with the you know the dispatcher's information with the video cameras and then some kind of animated maps. If anyone hasn't seen that, and I tried to get them on, we were trying to do kind of almost like a virtual presentation that we could share to everyone, but I gotta circle around with them again. 
But that is such a powerful witness. And that was one single score. As you mentioned, I've had people on here that were at Aurora, that were at um, Columbine, that were at multiple for the, from the pulse shooting Crazy. that we have. And, pulse shooting, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the problem is it kind of gets swept under the rug. People argue about guns, they stop, and then they talk about, you know, like mm-hmm. most recently, well, there's a tranny on my Bud Light can. That becomes exactly. more fucking important than a school full of kids that were just murdered. So it's so important that we hear these. So I just, you know, just want to say for that one thing that you talked about, thank you, because that keeps the memory of those children alive and it keeps the mission that we have to fucking address not just guns, mental health, psychiatric meds, violence on our screens, sleep deprivation, you know, bullying, all these other compounding elements that have created this cycle of violence that really doesn't exist hardly anywhere else on the planet except the quote-unquote greatest country in the world. Absolutely, man. And if you guys are listening think that this is never going to happen, you work in a small fire department, it's never happened in your town, I was you. I was you. And shit that never happens happens all the time. So please, like, prepare for it because uh, it, it gets real very fast, very fast. Well, speaking of preparation, you know, you've you've had such a story career up to this point. You became a student. You became a mentor in your own department. Then you've extended outside your department with National Rescue Consultants. Talk to me about the genesis of that, and then what you offer to the people listening. Okay, so rescue, rescue, uh, National Rescue Consultants. Um, I'm a a Part of it, I am one of their instructors. I, I, I do a lot of teaching with them all the time. Now, the owner is actually a, a great friend of mine, Herbie Tyler, and his partner is Greg Rogers, and they both work for the city of West Palm Beach on the career side. Um, I'm, I'm honored to be associated with them in the company. We've uh, they've grown the company over the last ten years, uh, from you know just doing some local stuff to to being one of the premier leaders in special operations training as far as like uh, technical rescue and hazmat and and you name it in the, in the SOC world, they're traveling 24-7 uh, every week of the month if they have a representation somewhere of a group of guys teaching a class. Most recently, they were in, uh, in Canada all, all the last 10 days doing a heavy equipment rescue specialist class up there with the guys from Calgary. Um, the company itself uh, stays very busy, like I said, and um, they've built it literally on the foundation of real-world training provided by people that um, have either A, been exposed to it, or B, uh, been around it long enough and assigned to those units where they're giving you firsthand information of classroom experience where it meets real-world experience and it's fully vetted and data-driven, um, which is why I, associ- I associated myself with them immediately. Once I, I caught wind of it, and we all were just great friends growing up, and I had never worked with them in the beginning like 2013 to 2016, because um, I was busy doing my own thing. And then when I saw their direction and the way the company was being um, carried and how and how selective they were with the instructors that they had, I, I immediately wanted to be a part of it. I'm so glad I did, because it's been one of my career accomplishments I'm very proud of. And the people that I've met teaching and traveling abroad uh, afforded me the opportunities to become better at my craft, because... You know, it's not just a saying. Every time you go out and teach, you actually do learn just as much as you teach. And a lot of the cool shit that I brought back home, I would have never learned because if you do not get outside your sandbox, you're going to just be like in, in some form of incestuous, like regional relationship with the fire service, which stunts uh, your growth. Uh, the second that you grow wings and get outside the nest um, and you become a member of the fire service, you start talking to people like yourself 
has traveled and taught and met and interacted with firefighters from all across the country, you now become part of a much more uh, broad and important and accomplished organization, which is the American Fire Service, not just your fire department that pays your bills every two weeks. Beautiful. Well, my apologies for the uh, misinformation. So I apologize okay. to the founders of National Rescue of Consultants. So okay. just for people listening, what kind of classes do they offer to the fire service? They offer, um, they stay very, very in their lane. Uh, we All the urban search and rescue classes are provided by National Rescue Consultants. Uh, all the rope classes can find space classes, uh, trench rescue excavation classes, uh, man and machine classes. They do structural collapse technician shoring classes. Um, every form of special operations class you can imagine, down to swift water rescue and hazardous materials technician, uh, you can get through uh, National Rescue Consultants. Uh, you go online, you check them out on on any type of social media platform, whether it's Instagram or Facebook, or even on just on their company website. And they're not a brick and mortar, so you don't come to us. You request a class, you can host a class, and they'll come to you. And we're they're fully functional, fully autonomous, and fully certified to teach their classes anywhere in the country. And they're a phone call away. I've been as far as California with our trailers, uh, Texas. Um, we did a class two years ago for uh, Chief Brush, for Brian Brush, up in Midwest Oklahoma, um, for his department. We, we, and we drove there from Miami. So we'll, we'll drive anywhere for these classes. You call, we haul. Beautiful. Well, I'd love to throw some closing questions at you um, if you've got a few more minutes. Absolutely. What do you got? Brilliant. All right. First question I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. So uh, completely unrelated, I love the book Atomic Habits. It's my all-time read. I read it constantly. I love all the things about it. Uh, building good habits in, and why the brain works the way it works to follow through with those habits and internalize those behaviors is the premise of uh, what I teach in the Mayday Mindset side of the house, which is what I do as far as firefighter rescue and survival. And um, the Learn, Improve, and Master book by uh, Nick Velasquez. Um, great book. Uh, also down my lane, uh, anything that has to do with the art of learning, education, and I'm really into like the meta-learning, understanding how people learn and why they learn that way down to a nerdy neurological level makes sense to me. So if you're that guy or girl that wants to get real nerdy with your teaching or even want to improve how you learn, um, those books are great for you. There's a bunch of other ones that are, that are slipping my mind right now. But um, another one is called Flow. That's L O W. Uh, that one's great as well. And I don't remember, I don't remember the author's name because it's very complicated. Uh, he has a real long name. But guys, those books work great if you're into the nerdy understanding of human uh, uh, learning and uh, the way the adult brain works. And I, what I what I've done with those books is apply them to the fire service, just like we all do. If you're a firefighter, you know, the, you, you apply it to the fire service. If you're a police officer, you apply it to the, you apply it to the to the police uh, service. But, um, you know, you're, you're a hammer, the whole world's a nail, right? So every time I read these books, it makes me a better instructor because I know how to cater to the adult audience better. And when we teach a skill, we teach a skill in a way that's going to be learned and sustained, not just mimicked and followed for a day and forgotten immediately afterwards. And uh, those books really were the premise of me going down that road uh, altogether. Those, those, books, those books actually built the way that, I deliver the Mayday Mindset and the logic behind it. Well, speaking of Mayday Mindset, I want to make sure that we don't 
skip over that as well. Talk to me about the class that you offer. Um, and some of the the myths when it comes to RIT and Mayday and some of the uh, the solutions or the the updated thinking that you're bringing through your class. Okay, so just uh, real quick on the Mayday mindset, I and mean, just the cliff note versions of it is it's uh, it's a it's not a RIT class, it's not a uh, firefighter survival class. It's a class to teach us why firefighter survival and firefighter rescue must be taught a certain way in order for it to work and stick. Um, the way that it is being taught the linear approach that has been normalized across the country um, is very concerning and at times very inadequate when you understand uh, the world outside of the fire rescue service. The, then the fire service is a very, uh, you know, A goes to B, B goes to C linear approach. There's nothing linear about a real world mayday uh, when human emotions are at play and stress and resiliency are being tested. Um, you have to learn a function a certain way in order to be able to reproduce it under those conditions effectively. And there is an algorithm for that. And the algorithm is exactly what my focus is when I teach the Mayday mindset. I am not interested in treating the symptom. I'm interested in treating the, in treating the cause. Um, there is, there are no guys, there are, listen, there's a lot of big names out there that teach a lot of things and they're all great guys. And I love them to death and, and they're colleagues of mine and mentors, and I love them to death, and they do. There's nothing being nefarious being said, but there is um, very few guys and girls out there that are teaching uh, firefighter rescue and firefighter survival and maydays the way that it should be taught based on the understanding of human learning and human behavior patterns under stress. You cannot ignore the most predictable failure and this process, which is the human in the mayday. So in order to address a human, you have to have an in-depth understanding of human behavior patterns under stress, which are very predictable, and the, um, the psychological and physiological changes you're going to be exposed to when you're in a knife fight in an elevator, okay? Once you understand all that, which is the mayday mindset focuses on, and we teach you a skill in a way that follows that algorithm. And it may be a skill you've done 10 times, but I promise you that this time it will be done different and it'll make sense. I heard you talking about um, this a little bit on the Three Point Firefighter podcast and you mentioned Rick George, who's a friend of mine and he's been on before. He's definitely someone that understands stress inoculation and setting the bar high in training. So talk to me about his mentorship. Um, Rick George is the top of the totem pole in my, my little micro focus of the fire service. Uh, he is legit, like, um, he was the driving factor, and I've told him this many times, and he's the most humble human being in the world. So anytime I talk to Rick, I tell him, man, you're the reason I do what I do. Your conversations are the one that drove me to doing what I do. Um, he is, I have no word for somebody who uh, epitomizes and personifies everything that I wish I can articulate as an instructor to a student that's trying to learn from me. Um, he, he made me a better firefighter, a better human being, a better man, a better husband, a better father. This guy improves me at every level. And I'm, and he's going to be like, dude, what are you doing on the, what are you doing on that podcast saying all these nice things about, me? you know, but <laughs> that's the way he is. That's the way he is. And, uh, he, he understands this. He understands his subject matter at such a high, high functioning level. Like he should be a, a neuroscientist at this point because he's talked to and met with and spoken to and learned from some of the greatest minds in that arena. 
uh, outside the fire service. Um, here I am trying to simplify his uh, methodology for the firefighter uh, so that everyday firefighter who needs to know why this works for me uh, understands how to learn what he needs to work for him. Because my approach to teaching is completely built around developing intuition and a reliable gut reflex um, based on evidence-based science and tradition. I can create a reliable gut feeling on a fire ground, a reliable intuitive reaction on the fire ground, a reliable reflex on the fire ground based on my training that was based on evidence-based data collection and science and experience, which is tradition, then I am going to have the greatest possibility for a positive outcome. If I am simply learning a skill, this is the way you take your air pack off, this is the way you remove your mask, this is the way you do this, this is the way you do the other, this is the way you jump out a window, and none of those other issues are addressed, then nothing was addressed and I just went through the motions. And your movement and practice has to be purposeful. Otherwise, you're just burning energy and calories and running in place. You're not really growing or learning. Love it. Yeah, no, he's he's amazing. Um, he's someone that got into the fire service kind of late too. He has a pretty interesting early life. But uh, that yeah. straight that high stress training thing is something that I've seen deteriorate in in some of the places that I work. Anaheim held it very very high, but um, you know, it becomes more of checking boxes, and this is what is terrifying. As you talked about some of the events that you've led to, not only just the the stress of the operation but also the fitness i mean you talk about the the stair chair evacuation and the high rise we've got people saying it's not fair to have to do the cpat well what the fuck do you think you're signing up for it's not accounting this is the fire service and it drives me crazy so putting that bar like hialeah did up high and maintaining it and labeling it minimal standards <laughs> minimum standards at the front door um you then allowed a, you know you you can hone the skills and then you again as we talked about before you have the capacity to then critically think if you're correct if, if if pulling a cross lay or throwing a 24 is still challenging to you and you have to think about it you're not as you said you're not training you're just going through the motions you should be drilling to the point where you can add realism next and those skills become simply a skill and now you get to critically think about the actual situation itself yes 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 perfectly said this micro pro this processor that is the human brain is not that effective under stress so by internalizing like you just said i'm going to echo what you said by internalizing simple skills as many simple skills as possible internalizing them to where they become a reactive function that's efficient under stress you clear out space to critical think at the same time if all my freaking brain energy is focused on throwing up a 24 foot ladder that I have no time to be to remain situationally aware and what my next step is. Because all my energy and brain is single track oriented dealing with that ladder right now. How do I get rid of that? By internalizing throwing a ladder. You throw a ladder enough times at 2 p.m. When you throw that shit at 2 in the morning outside someone's house, your body and brain will not know the difference. It won't know the difference if you do it at a firehouse at 2 p.m. or somebody else's house at 2 a.m. What it does for you and the benefits of that is not only that you're going to look awesome on scene and kick ass and be good at your job, but you're also going to have room and availability for critical thinking to keep yourself out of trouble. We spend so much time and energy telling and teaching our members how to get out of trouble that we refuse or fail to teach them how to stay out of trouble. This is one of the ways you stay out of trouble, man. Freaking train. But when you train, you have to train the right way. 
that you have to start small, build, create a bridge, perform, and then apply it to the real world, readdress. You have to unfollow these norms, unfollow the norms. I don't give a shit who's talking about it. Insert name here, my name. Unfollow anybody's name. Edit your beliefs. Understand that you don't know what you don't know and update your systems. Constantly update your systems based on evidence-based education, data, street vetting, and traditions. I like all of them. I like all of them. And then just figure it out. Because, and the only way you're going to figure it out is by actually getting hands-on and doing it. Listen, I can read a book about playing guitar and know every word, memorize every word in the book and teach out of that book. But if I never pick up a guitar, I, I'm still not a guitarist. All right? You have to pick up the guitar. You have to throw the ladder. You have to apply the data, the evidence-based scientific shit to the fire ground and to the streets. And that's where you normalize the, the routine, find out what works, edit your beliefs, and update your systems. Otherwise, you're spinning your wheels and you're living in a false sense of security that this shit's never going to happen to me. Guess what, man? Uh, uh, maydays are not a, like a possibility. Maydays are a probability. You're probably going to have a meeting. We just lost a young brother in South Carolina a couple of days ago. You know, that guy was ate up. He was more prepared than 90% of the people that I deal with every day. And by preparation, I'm talking about the classes and the involvement and the constant deposit that he was doing into his bank of education on a daily. You know that every conference I went to, that kid was there. And he still got caught up. The shit that never happens happens all the time. All right. If you think that that's not going to happen to you because you work here or there, or you don't do this, or you do that, or you just you just it's never been a part of your career, it's, it only needs to happen once, man. I, I promise you. And and don't do that to your family; they deserve better. And don't do don't put the members on your company in a position to have to go in and save your ass and risk their lives further, because we all know the data when it comes to uh, what happens when you join a RIT team. You're burning oxygen faster than everybody else. You're probably going to end up in a mayday yourself. Okay, because we're coming after you because you thought this would never happen to me. And then it did. And now you have no plan on how to get out of it. Or your plan that you do have is one that you learned uh, six months ago or six years ago that really doesn't work under stress in the real world. And you're not going to just figure it out because you're in a state of performing and in anxiety. And nobody figures shit out when they're performing. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and rest easier to James Muller, too. That was absolutely tragic. Rest easy, brother. Well, I want to get back to the closing questions then. Thank yes. you for that tangent, though. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's why I asked you. That's why I wanted to make some space for, for your philosophy on that. And that's a, you know, a, Thank you. a devastating okay. reason why, you know. Um, Thank you. So the next closing question, is there a movie or a documentary that you love to recommend? Let me think about this one. I've never had this question before. Backdraft 2, maybe? No, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. Man, I am a huge fan of military movies. I am a huge fan of history movies. Um, any movie that involves uh, some form of example of leadership under fire, um, I'm a fan of. I'm, I'm, I'm not a comedy fan. I'm not a, a off the script. Uh, one of these guys at the firehouse that can like, quote movie lines. I'm not that guy. And I just that, that kind of stuff doesn't stick to me. I'm like kind of a, like a one-trick pony. And um, every time that I create time to watch something, I need to get something out of it uh, at this stage of my career. 
Um, very few times will I watch something that's just for entertainment purposes. If, it, if I am doing that, it's because I'm with one of the kids or, or my significant other decided that we were going to just have a night out and watch a romantic uh, rom-com. But um, man, uh, anything that has to do, simple answer, anything that has to do with uh, history or the military. I, I, I just, uh, I really enjoy those. And, and, and I look for examples of uh, leadership in, in those movies uh, when I can. And I try to apply them to the world that I operate in. So I just watched a show, I think it was on Netflix, and it was called Beef. And I think there was eight episodes. I'm I'm a big fan of, of again, same as you. I want I want to leave a film feeling nourished in some way. It doesn't have to have like, you know, a documentary element to it, but you know, inspiring, make me feel better, whatever it is. I have never seen such a good story on television for well, not never. I haven't seen one for a long time. This show Every single episode goes such a different way. Uh, it starts with this road rage incident. It's got Ali Wong and another yeah. actor. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but if you want no, something where you won't feel like you've wasted an hour of your life at a time and you're actually entertained and you can't wait to watch the next episode, I can't recommend that. And one of the best things I've seen in a long time. Beef. I will actually, I came up in a conversation last night with Stacy at home. She said, hey, let's watch Beef. And I, and, I, and I passed on it, so I should have done. I should have said yes. <laughs> well, because initially it looks kind of big, because there's a lot of things on yeah. Netflix. They throw a lot of money at a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. This one's definitely worth the watch. Awesome. We'll do it, brother. I appreciate the recommendation. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Um, uh, if, if we're going to stay along the lines of like mental health and experience and all that, um, there's, there's guys that pop into my head, like, uh, Maddie, uh, Matthew Johnson, Maddie Johnson out of Fort Lauderdale. Um, he was just on, uh, on Corley Moore's show on the podcast not too long ago. He did a great job. He had a great story to tell. Um, and he's really uh, looking to spread his message. And, uh, Timothy Gleason, Timothy Gleason out of the city of Miami. Um, he's also got a great story to tell. And I, I'd highly recommend those two. And anybody who has not watched them or had an opportunity to work with them, um, please do, man. Those guys are just both are just gentlemen. And um, you talk about trial by fire, those two guys have lived it and done it uh, at both ends, on the personal end and on, on the fire department end. And they can talk to you about anything. And uh, it's relatable, very relatable. No matter how cool you think you are, there's always a cooler guy that walks into the room and it's those guys. Very cool. Thank you so much. All right, well, then the very last question before we make sure everyone knows how to find you, what do you do to decompress? Wow, to decompress, honestly, these days I uh, exercise, walk, rut. I, I got to get away and sweat. If, uh, if I'm not out sweating, doing something on my own um, with a good podcast or a book in my ear, um, I have a hard time decompressing. I'm not going to lie. Um, we talked about it before. I have a 10-month-old at home, so I'm in a full caregiver mode 24-7. I, uh, I joke with the guys at the firehouse that I'm in a constant state of fatigue. You know, because you don't get sleep at the firehouse. You don't get much sleep at home. Uh, it's it's kind of tough right now. It's just a phase I'm in. Uh, I know that it's going to go away eventually. Um, but you just happened to ask me that question during this this stage of my life. We had this conversation in five years. So I'll have a different answer for you. But right now, getting away from work, getting away from that, spending an hour by myself, uh, sweating, getting my heart rate up, and uh, listening to something that I enjoy listening to where I can listen and answer and talk to myself during the process. Um, will keep me going because I enjoy that journey. I enjoy that mental journey and, and taking my brain out for a walk. Uh, that's what I call it. I don't go for a walk. I take my brain for a walk and I wear something heavy on my back. 
my exercise walk. And that's what I've been doing lately. Fantastic. All right. Well, then the very last question. If people want to reach out to you, find you online, um, even contact you regarding Mayday Mindset, where are the best places? So uh, just for the Mayday Mindset alone, you can just uh, uh, rob Ramirez at maydaymindset.com. Uh, that's the easiest way to reach me. Other than that, I, um, I have a Facebook page and I have an Instagram page. Uh, next week, we'll be up in uh, Michigan. Uh, the month after that, we're in Arkansas. Then we have a couple of things that we're doing in Florida. I'll be up in the Ocala area um, at the North Central Florida Fire Conference in December. I'm going to be keynoting that event. And um, then in North Carolina in November for the Carolina Training Days. Uh, we're still, we, I'm keeping a pretty busy schedule, but since I said I have a 10-month-old at home and I'm still a firefighter on the job, I, I, I travel once a month outside the state or in-state with a media mindset. And uh, that keeps me busy enough to where I can work, you know, be home and get some form of uh, personal professional. I'm pretty easy to find. Um, all my all my sites are public. I'm not as easy as fine as James. Holy cow. Put his name in. It came up everywhere. Um, <laughs> but but you can find me. You can find me. You can find me. But not as easy as you can find this guy. <laughs> it was a weird last name too. There's a lot more Ramirez's than Gearing, so especially down here, brother, in Hialeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob, I want to thank you so much. I mean, not only what you've done for the fire service, and but but I think more importantly, like I said before, there's there's this kind of myth that you and I grew up with, which was you know a man is this kind of bodybuilder with no emotion, and a lot of our um, most revered figures in the fire service can be viewed in that lens if it isn't for their vulnerability and their transparency. But you've, you know, you've not only told us about some of these incredible calls from the operational side, but also from the emotional side too. So I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on the podcast today. Listen, I appreciate you having me. Honestly, the, the honor and the pleasure is all mine. Anytime that I can do one of these things, I, I, I kind of pinch myself because um, it gives me a release for my passion and my, uh, it gives me an opportunity to meet guys like you. Thank you for what you're doing. What you're doing is changing uh, the entire first responder industry. Um, a big, been, been a big fan of your podcast for a long time and 100% uh, grateful for this opportunity and I wish you nothing but continued success, my friend. Mm -hmm.